Welcome everyone. Let's open, start again, begin the meeting. It's September 8th at 5.33 p.m. Should we start with roll call? Absolutely. President Ariano is, is excused. Vice President Catherine Chu. Present. Commissioner Margaret Brodkin. Present. Commissioner Toya Moses. Present. Commissioner Andrea Shorter. Present. Commissioner James Spingola. Present. Vice President, you have a quorum. Wonderful. Shall we see if there's any general public comment? A reminder to press star three if you'd like to make public comment. Do we have any emails, hands raised, or anyone in the queue on the phone? We have, we had one hand up in attendees, but they put their hand down. Oh, they just put it up again. Is the hand back up? Yes, it is. Let me unmute them. Hello, caller, you have three minutes. Thank you. Hi, this is Molly Brown. I'm um, the budget and data analyst for the Juvenile Justice Providers Association and a District 1 resident. And I would just like to encourage the commission um, to um, put together a policy or an instruction or a desire or a request of the probation department to link our youth at the point of intake with a CBO partner. Um, I've read so many reports over the last decade or so about the importance of helping youth have a smooth transition into the community. And um, I just don't feel like we're doing enough. There have been a number of opportunities where youth could get paired with the CBO. And I think some of the reports you may see tonight may show that that doesn't happen until the end. And because a lot of the youth actually aren't on probation for that long or their charges are dropped, I think it behooves us all to link that youth with a partner in the community at the initial point of contact to ensure that that youth doesn't get dropped. And, and I feel pretty confident that that will not happen if the CBO is involved. And I think at this juncture in time, it would behoove the commission to ensure that that happens um, as, as, a, as a means of kind of making sure that we demonstrate our commitment to the youth and families uh, involved with juvenile probation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Are there any other persons who no. like to make? Oh, great. Thank you. Not at this time. All right. Uh, I think our next item on the agenda is item number three to review and approve the commission meetings from, sorry, the commission meeting minutes from July 14th. I would move to approve them. I'll just call uh, Vice President Chu. Aye. Commissioner Brodkin. Hey, can I abstain on this? I haven't read them. Okay. Commissioner Moses. Aye. Commissioner Shorter. Aye. And Commissioner Spingola. Aye. Motion approved.
Great. Our next item is a presentation on the Closing Juvenile Hall Working Group um, case file review. And this is a discussion item. Do we need to pass the envelope to the yes. presenters? Yes, I'm going to do that. Great. There we go. Okay. Um, thanks, everybody. I'm Roger Jarjura from the American Institutes for Research and uh, I led a team well, that did a conducted a, a file review uh, of a sample of cases from 2020 earlier this year, and so um, I'm here to present just a, a a small part of the overall report, focusing on just a couple of the issues here. I appreciate the opportunity. So, you you should have a copy of this document. Um, it can be made available if you don't already have that. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll skip by some of the initial, um, uh, you know, this was done in conjunction with the Close Juvenile Hall Working Group. Um, the, the work was done uh, to benefit the, the process that they're going through. Um, just to let you know, so we uh, identified a sample of youth who were detained at Juvenile Hall between March and September of 2020. And uh, there were 100 youth that were booked into Juvenile Hall during that period. Um, we went in um, to uh, look at all of those files. We ended up uh, completing a uh, 77 of those case file reviews and we did work with a group from the closed juvenile hall working group to uh, uh when it became clear that we weren't going to be able to do all of them in in a timely manner um, we did work together to identify a subset uh to really focus on so that we can um, achieve the most diverse group of cases and circumstances so we did look, uh, it was a pretty broad uh, scope of sort of information that we tried to gather from each of the files. We um, were provided access. We sat in one of the conference rooms there at, at JPD and, and worked through the, the case files here. Uh, and so, uh, so they're pretty deep dives into uh, what was going on with those cases. Let me just share with you a little bit here about the uh, uh, who's in the sample. Uh, you know, some characteristics here. So almost 80% of the sample were male, 44% uh, African-American, 38% Hispanic, 57% um, were uh, residents of San Francisco County, uh, and another, uh, you know, nearly 30%, uh, just over 30% uh, from Alameda and Contra Costa counties. Um, in terms of the ages there, uh, the majority were 17 or 16 years old, um, so older.
kids. Uh, and then uh, from the scores, uh, the overall risk scores on the YLS, uh, we see that uh, uh, just over a third um, are either high risk or very high risk, um, and at about a quarter uh, were low risk. So we looked at what's the reason that they came in uh, to the detention center. Uh, so, uh, and, and this was from the information that was uh, utilized in terms of scoring them on the detention risk instrument. Uh, and, and this was, so if they came in, if they were arrested on a new law violation, uh, there were 75% of those cases. Um, but if they also had a warrant, uh, an, an active warrant that was out, then we coded them for this category as well too. So these are not mutually exclusive categories here. And you can see that you know, there were 36% of, of the sample that we looked at that had an active warrant at the time of their arrest. 13% uh, were there on a home detention violation, 12% placement failure, 8% violation of probation. And 3% were transferred in. So they had been uh, arrested and detained in another detention center, and then the case was transferred in um, and uh, from, from that other jurisdiction. So if we look at the new law violations, uh, so we see that uh, nearly half were violent offenses. And uh, we did split out. So if you look at uh, you know, of the violent crimes, you know, three out of five of those were robberies here. And that became one of the areas that we did look a little more closely to try to understand what was happening with the with the robbery cases. Clearly one of the, the most common uh, types of offenses that kids were coming into detention for. So, 43% of the new law violations involved uh, the 707B offenses, right? So those were, uh, that was important in terms of determining whether um, they, uh, if that was an automatic detention. Um, but, and so we tried to look a little more closer as to what happened to those cases here. So 40% of the cases, um, uh, so th this circle here in the middle, the pie chart in the middle here, we see at, once they, um, think about whether they're going to file a petition or not, right? So 52% of the cases, they file a petition and it is still a 707B offense. Um, there's 8% of the cases, it's no longer a 707B uh, offense. And, and in, in every one of those cases, it was, it was, it became a property that was charged with a property offense. Um, and uh, for, in 40% of the cases, no petition was filed. So let's let's look at what happens with those the ones that remained a 707B um, case. So for those uh, still involved a 707B, 77% uh, of those were filed as robberies, and then 23% um, some other type of offense. So um, the vast majority uh, were robberies. If we look at the cases where there was no petition filed. Um, in terms of the original offense that they came in on, 50% of those, um, or no petition was ultimately filed, um, were started off as robbery cases, um, and and 50% some other type of uh, type of offense. So I want to 
unpack here some what we here's what we learned. We took we went in um, and we looked at cases where uh, they were either charged or uh, there was a, a petition was filed uh, with the robbery. And so we there were 26 robbery incidents that we looked closer at and we looked through the, the police uh, description of what happened. And so here's here's what we learned um, in terms of what patterns emerged. Uh, so the robbery typically occurred on the street or on some on public transportation. That was, for the most part, that's that's where these cases were happening. Um, and we looked at whether kids were acting alone or along with a co-offender. Uh, uh, and what we found was that uh, they weren't always acting alone. But the, in the 26 cases that we looked at, the young person who file we were reviewing, um, they did take an active role. So we're not talking about kids who were just there um, as a, a, you know, in the presence when it was happening. They took an active role either in using force or in stealing the items here. Um, we, when we think about this issue of force and, you know, that's part of what defines this as a robbery, right? We're talking most of the cases um, it was force that involved punching, hitting, kicking, or pushing to the ground. In most of the cases, uh, the, the victim tried to res resist the removal of their property. And so oftentimes it looked like the youth was using force to get them to, you know, to get the item and, and to get away. Uh, and from the descriptions that were offered by the police, uh, again, the youth whose file we were reviewing um, took an active role uh, in using force in 83% of the, of the incidents that we reviewed. Um, we looked at whether or not there was a weapon involved, and so that was true in 27% of these cases that we looked at here. And if we and, and in those cases that involved a, a weapon, half of those the weapon was a handgun. Um, although in one instance it was and turned out to be a fake gun. Um, no case that we looked at was the handgun actually fired. Um, in a small number of cases, it was used. Uh, to hit them. So the victim was injured, but it was because they were hit with the gun, not because the gun was fired. Um, small number of instances involved the use of a tape. So in so the other half of the ins, the other kinds of weapons are uh, weapons that we saw uh, involved a taser. Uh, in one case, the, the weapon was a chair. The person used a chair to hit the person. Um, and uh, then the the other point I'll, I'll note here is that when a weapon was involved, um, the youth who was using the youth, again, whose file we were looking at um, was the one using the weapon in all but one instance. So it turns out that the cell phone um, was the most coveted item uh, in terms of what they were looking for. 62% of the cases, it, this was about trying to steal a cell phone from somebody. Um, other kinds of things that were taken, cameras, video games, laptops. Um, 35% of the cases, the youth also took the victim's purse, wallet, backpack, or duffel bag. So in those cases, the victim also lost cash or credit cards. Uh, these cases, as I mentioned, you know, generally took place in the public. And so it was not uncommon that there were bystanders who tried to intervene or for the police to be nearby. So if it happened on public transportation in particular, um, the, the transit police was was nearby. And so 44% of the cases that we looked at, um, the youth was quickly apprehended and the items were returned to the victim. Um, 
the victim did or uh, there was reports in the again in the police descriptions that the victim was injured in 39% of the incidents those injuries were described as pain bruising cuts swelling very few of the victims requested medical attention and nobody that in the cases we looked at uh, experienced life threatening uh, injuries um, so then we looked at what so what what ultimately became of these cases right so uh, so if there was a petition charged um, that typically was a was charged as a robbery uh, so if if they filed a petition among 26 cases that we reviewed um, that one of them did not result in a petition filed um, one was a less serious violent offense which was a battery um, and one involved a property offense. It was a grand theft. But the other 23 cases, um, the petition was char was filed with the charge of robbery. Then we looked at well, how was that? Were they sustained then uh, as the case progressed further? Um, and so again, if we break down those 26 cases, um, so in nine out of the 26, robbery was the sustained charge on the uh, for, on the sustained petition. Um, in five cases, there was a less serious violent offense. In four cases, property offenses. Um, there were other offenses in two of the cases. And in six, six of the 26 cases, there were no charges sustained, ultimately, as the case was wrapped up. Okay. And then the other thing that I want to share with you today um, is, so we look, took, took a closer look at warrants. <clears throat> so, nearly half of the youth in the, in our sample had at least warrant issued at some point following their initial referral um, and many of them had multiple warrants um, so we had 35 youth out of our sample that had any any warrants at all we tracked up to five different warrants for each of them so we so the data that i'm going to show you now is on uh, is looking at a total of 85 warrants across those 35 youth. And so you can see the breakdown here. So 34% of the cases, they only had one warrant uh, all the way up to there were 9% who had who had five or more warrants. The majority of the warrants were for running away from out of home placements. So 50, that was true 57% of the time. 28% uh, it was the warrant was for a home detention violation and 15% of the time for a probation violation. <clears throat> uh, most of the time we looked at whether the warrant was issued during the pre adjudication period or the post adjudication or post disposition. And in two thirds of the cases, warrants were issued uh, post post disposition. We looked at ultimately whether the warrant was recalled without detaining the youth. So whether the the warrant was just recalled and the youth didn't have to go to detention. That was pretty that that didn't happen very often. It happened 11% of the cases, um, and but it was more likely to happen in the pre adjudication phase, where about a third of them um, were handled um, the, where the warrant was recalled without detaining the youth. We, we looked at how long after the warrant was issued before the young person was arrested um, and, the, and the warrant was uh, was recalled. Um, so about a third <clears throat> happened within a week, um, but there were 40% that it was 30 days or more um, after the warrant was issued before the young person was um, was arrested and taken into custody. And I'll just note here that there were six cases um, where the warrant we were looking at was still outstanding. So at the at based on at the time that we did the file review, um, 
that young person was still uh, had not been uh, apprehended and the, the warrant was still active. And so then we looked at what was the reason? How did they come to be, uh, you know, uh, come to the attention of police where they were arrested again? So 40, uh, nearly 40% of the time they were arrested on a new law violation. So that happened 37% of the time. Um, another 19% of the cases where a young person was involved in some activity and came to the attention of the police. Sometimes the police were suspicious that a crime was going on. Sometimes they were involved in a dispute with somebody else and the police, they or they just look suspicious out on the streets and the police approached them and checked their identification and learned that they had a, a warrant out for them. 13% of the time, the police were called by somebody who knew that this young person had a warrant and called the police and said, hey, so-and-so's here. Uh, we know there's a warrant out for them and the police were able to come and, and, and arrest them without any incident. 15% um, of the cases, the youth turned themselves in. They showed up at uh, juvenile probation uh, and turned themselves in. Um, uh, seven percent of warrant was is still active, um, and then in nine nine percent of the cases, the warrant got recalled without the young person um, having to be taken into custody. And we looked at what happens to these cases. So they got most of these cases are in detention, and so we looked at what happens um, when they're released from detention. And what we find is that the majority of them, over fifty percent, uh, leave detention to go to some type of out of home placement. Twenty six percent go back go on to home supervision, um, and uh, four percent are transferred to another jurisdiction. Sixteen percent um, they weren't detained, or and so it's just um, it's not applicable to this this breakdown here. One of the things that I mentioned before was that you know. Out of home placement, running away from out of home placement was one of the was one of the biggest reasons why there was a warrant issued. And so we looked at, um, you know, what happens with with those cases here. And so when a young person runs away from placement, uh, so nearly half go more than a month before they're uh, arrested, um, and a greater proportion. Uh, that's a greater proportion here than for other reasons, right? So we don't see that same. Uh, proportion if it was a probation violation or running away from place, or um, I'm sorry, from home detention violation. And when we look at, so what happens to them after, you know, once once they're in detention? So if they ran away from placement, almost three quarters of them are going to, they're going to leave detention and go back to another out of home placement. Um, it's pro uh, predominantly what happens. Um, so more likely for the home detention violation or probation violation that they're going to be released on home supervision. When the youth are picked up on, a, so when the police are called and said, hey, so-and-so is here and they have a warrant, when uh, in those situations or when the young person turns themselves in, um, those cases, they're more likely to, uh, to be released on home supervision. And then just one last point that I'll say about running away. So uh, running away seems to be a trigger um, for uh, having the warrant uh, issued. So uh, we saw with cases where the young person was really struggling on home detention or struggling on a probation violation. And once they ran away, 
um, that became, you know, that was sort of the, the triggering event where a warrant was filed. And same thing with placement failures. Um, interestingly, for placement failures, so almost half ran away very soon after they arrived within a placement. For a, a large number, was within the first week um, that they were in the placement. And at least 83% of placement failures involved the young person running away uh, from placement ultimately. So that's all I had prepared to share. I am happy to um, uh, respond to any questions. Commissioner Moses, um, go ahead. Yeah. Could you give an example of a um, home detention violation? So uh, while they're on home detention, uh, they follow curfew. They have curfew um, or they might be on electronic monitoring. Uh, so they might be, you know, somewhere where they're not supposed to be or there are a violation could be that they're not following the rules of their, you know, their who the guardian is, right? Could be their family. Could sometimes they were uh, in a, uh, this was a foster care situation um, or and often running away. Today we're, um something to monitor how did how how do they determine that so for those that for, sure for those that were on electronic monitoring they they did have a monitor right uh and so see. yeah okay thank you hey can i can i ask um do, do, does it show in there any kind what was the process on how they paired the young person with the detention with the home placement, or was it you know, or or wherever they put them at? The, was it any process or any kind of thought saying, okay, well, I'm going to put this this young person in this facility because with these with this family because it works. Is was it anything in there saying you know like why they was paired with that with that particular um, space? Sure. Um, yeah, it's, it seemed like that was always a, a pretty thoughtful process. So, uh, if they, so if they were home with their family, I mean, that was determined, um, uh, through conversations that that was going to be uh, a good situation. If they weren't going to be able to be with their parents, uh, their, uh, you know, there was a, a, a process that was followed to to determine if there was somebody else or another relative or uh, some, or they might have been placed uh, through HHS right in a foster um, setting uh, care, care setting. If they went to a um, an out of home placement, they had to usually go through a whole application process where the young person would be interviewed and uh, there would be a, a case plan would be established uh, so that yeah so. Uh, it, it seemed evident to us in the in the file review that that was always a, a pretty thoughtful um, process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for that, because I was I was just wondering, you know, like sometimes what the young person thought would be good for them before they decided, you know, to be placed somewhere, and you know what makes you run away, right? In the process of that, was it, you know, was it a good space for you? Did I put you in the wrong spot? You know, you know, just having that conversation with the young person is, you know, what I was trying to see if they did. But you we, can answer my question. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, the only uh, one other thing I'll I'll just mention uh, with that. So we did see there was a small, uh, well, small. There was a, a subset of cases where the 
young person wanted to be placed with a, a relative, but it didn't get approved, right? There was a, there's an approval process for that and it didn't get approved. So they went to an out-of-home placement where they then ran from the out-of-home placement. And then they were sort of, it, it took a few months for them to be, uh, you know, caught and then brought back to detention. And we did see that oftentimes they were staying where they really wanted to be and that hadn't gotten approved. So that young people, you know, yeah, so they 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 had a say, um, even though it, it didn't always get approved what they wanted, but they did sometimes, you know, create a situation where they got to stay um, yeah. in those settings. No, that's great. Um, Vice President, can... of course, Commissioner Shorter. Okay, Roger, thank you for the um, the report. Um, if you might, can you go back to the slide just before this closure? This one. Yeah. Um. Actually, maybe the one before. Sorry. No worries. Okay, so a couple of questions here. One, in the, with 48%, was it 48% um, have um, vacated their home placement? 48% uh, was the, what was the 48% again? 48%. Is it 46 or 48%? of the youth had some I'm um, just something to And it was out. related to it was related to home. Mm-hmm. Um may I, maybe I misheard or misread what your figure was. Maybe it's forty six percent. How many of the, how many youth, I think actually that was it. Go back again. Sorry, the one just no, before. This one right here. So 54%. Is it, are you saying that 54% of the sample of the, of, of the, of the youth are out of, were out of home placements or that, that 54%, um, can you just explain what this is again? Sure, I sure. Kind of got lost in your so math. this, yeah, um, yeah. I probably was going too fast. Uh, so if so, what this, what we're seeing here is that when they were released from detention. So these are so of all the kids who come who are arrested with a warrant, right? And so, um, eighty-four percent, right? So not so sixteen percent were not detained, but the other eighty-four percent were um, detained, um, and so the most common so then we looked at well then where did they go once they left detention right so they stayed in detention for some period of time 54 percent um didn't leave detention and went okay. home they went to an out-of-home placement okay i think that's the part that i okay got it so i actually have three questions one um did you all take any data in terms of the youth's reasons for the offenses that they committed. In other words, what was their, what was the common, like I did this because 
if they admit, if they, you know, uh, talked about their offense and their relationship to it. Two, was there a pattern in terms of the youth that uh, were detained or in this sample where the youth related? In other words, did you, were some of these offenses obviously with other people, right? So are we looking at, for instance, in this sample of the, um, just on this analysis alone, right? Just on this page, your note is that for this analysis, there were 85 warrants across 35 youth with warrants. What I'm trying to, what I'm asking is, were there a number, were a number of these youth related to the same incident? Two, um, on the home placement, um, did a number, how many home placements? In other words, did a number of these youth come from the same out of home placement situation where another, because it, it, this presumes that each of the out of home placement order or uh, situations were singular. It just sort of presumes that um, in an indirect way, because there's not, there's no data that suggests otherwise. So what I'm asking, or did you, or did, did you see or notice a particular pattern where there were particular home placements with one or uh, one youth or with um, more than one youth? Um, I'm just trying to get a feel for what, what do we need to know about that? That's a pretty high. Yeah, um, sure. So, so the, the first question that you asked, did we, do we know why, what the young person said about why they did what they did? So um, we did not, so we, this was a file review, right? So we, we didn't interact at all. Our research team did not interact at all with the young people. So we, we did not get to talk to them about what this was. So sometimes we knew from what was written in the file, right? So that was, it, it, it wasn't systematic, right? So sometimes there was a description or we could get, uh, probably more often than not, we knew like if a young person ran from a placement, why they left the placement, we would know, you know, what that was about. And we probably didn't have as much of the, um, uh, we didn't see as much of asking the young people the young person why they committed a particular crime. Sometimes that was evident, but not always. So I, I don't know that we have great data on that. So um, so that's the first question. I think the second one and the third one. So there were, if I understand what you're asking. So yeah, there were lots of associations here. So where two, you know, two kids, I mean, we had situations where some of the kids in our sample were siblings. Um, sometimes they were involved in the same um, uh, offenses, not always, right? Sometimes they were, uh, you know, but we, but, you know, you could see, right? We knew that they were siblings. Um, there were um, more than a few cases where two young people left placement together, right? They left placement together um, and uh, usually they split up. Um, but they were they went to placement together and they left uh, at the same time. So that we did see that as well too. Um, we do. You can have access to you may I don't know if you've already received, but there is a, a larger report, um, and we have some we have more data in there about what what are the placements we're talking about. And you can see which of the placements 
do better than others in terms of, you know, uh, there were some placements who, you know, at least for the sample, right? So, you know, I don't want, I don't want to suggest that we took a, you know, a, a representative sample of all cases that go to these placements, but um, at least for the sample that we looked at, there were some placements that every kid that was, that went there left, um, that ran away um, during the, during the period that we looked at. Um, does it feel like I answered your questions? Um, yeah, I think as best as you okay. did better than my asking of the questions, but I would like to, I will look at, at the full report because I do think that those are, um, um, those are points of interest in, in terms of, Absolutely. of, um, you know, the relationship if, if these are youth that were involved in the same, um, incidents, especially the seven. 07 B's, um, but um, yeah, and I do realize that this is just a sample. This is not representative of a annual, you know, because we're not at annual yet. And and the other thing too is, you know, we did this in 2020, right? And the, right, and you did this the in pandemic, so, you know, whatever, you know, whatever uh, mm -hmm. differences there were from, you know, business as usual, Mm -hmm. um, that's also factored in here as well. Right. Thank you. Sure. And I'm stopping video, not because, just so that it's easier for me to, to hear. Sometimes if I had the video on, everybody freezes. You froze a couple of times. Oh, but you, okay. You know, you, you, you look good, so. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thank you. Broadkin, did you have a question or comment? Yeah, I do, because I, I asked to have this report presented because I heard um, parts of it. I actually heard more than this at the closed juvenile hall working group, and I was impressed at the importance of the data. I mean, we are honing in in this report on the, the kids that most of the kids that get locked up are either 707Bs or on warrants, and that's who stays there, and that's who we need to really understand. And um, I, I just want to say that we spent a lot of money on this report and waited months and months and months to get it because it was supposed to inform our closed juvenile hall working group. So I, I, I was hoping for more, actually, and want to sort of follow up on the line of questions, Roger, that. Andrea answered, which is the last time we did a case by case review, which was years ago, and you know, for another reform effort, it, it dug a lot deeper. I mean, they were telling us how many, you know, a, a lot more about the kids. It wasn't just sort of the data, this many, this, and this many, that. Did you do anything like that? Like, how many of these kids have have families that you know want to be involved with them? How many? What do we know about these kids beyond just this cold data that you're presenting? And were you in any position? I understand you were just reviewing files, but you can tell a lot from files, or if you can't. That's a problem too. Um, so I want to know: Did you learn anything, you know, with more meat about who these kids are? And number two, um, I really wanted people to hear this because uh, I wanted to sort of 
pull apart this 707B concept that these are awful kids and they've all done terrible things and the assumption in your mind is there are guns involved, et cetera, et cetera. It sounds like there were no guns involved that a very small percentage of the ones that we say have to be locked up end up having petitions even sustained. Um, so this group of young people based on your data is not, <laughs> It, we could raise a lot of questions about what the right approach. I'm not saying we do nothing with these young people. I'm saying, you know, what ends up happening when, you know, petition isn't even sustained is something that conceivably could happen a lot earlier or doesn't have to be, be um, detained anyway. So there's so much richness, even in the data that you did get, even though it lacks any personal anything, um, but maybe, maybe you have it that can inform I want to hear more from you. Like, what's your analysis of this? What's the point of this? You need to be able to say to us, look, if only um, whatever percent, nine out of 26 cases of blah, 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 you know, you should be thinking about not having to detain these kids. You should be, they, a lot, most of these kids had intact families or didn't, you know, I, I I'm frustrated by the amount of time, money, effort, the, 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 I mean, the whole city was waiting on this report, like, oh my God, we're going to figure out what kind of alternatives we knew we do. We need as soon as the air report comes out. And um, so the two populations, this warrant population, <laughs> we need to know a lot more about are, are these warrants warranted? <laughs> you know, every time you have a warrant, did you have to lock somebody up? Or is there something we could do to preclude that? You get the point of what I'm saying, Roger. I, I, hi, this is Maria McKee, the Director of Research and Planning for JPD, and I'd like to step in before we let Roger respond. First of all, um, as Roger noted, this is a subset of the full report, which is quite long that. and quite robust, and I've just shared it with Pauline so she can share it with you. Second of all, this report was a collaboration between the Juvenile Probation Department and the Burns Institute and the American Institutes for Research. Um, and the uh, variables that were collected from the files were actually defined by the needs assessment um, subcommittee of the Closed Juvenile Hall Workgroup. They came directly from the Burns Institute with input from all of the members of that subcommittee. Um, and the Burns Institute provided the, the way that we decided to approach the process was for AAR to sort of provide the neutral um, summary of the data that they were given special access to. And, and the review that they did was incredibly comprehensive. They spent days and days on site over the course of over a month reviewing files, often that were multi volume files, meaning they were this many files. Um, and that Burns would provide the analysis to inform the policy. And so the Burns Institute also did do a presentation and a report based on um, the AIR report. And I can also send that to Pauline as well. And again, that was an intentional arrangement with the Burns Institute, which is the technical assistance provider to the closed juvenile court work group. Um, and the last thing I just have to address is the cost. The reason that this report was able to be completed was because the Department of Children, Youth and Families has a contract with the American Institutes for Research and AIR could not perform some of the 
functions under that contract due to the pandemic. And so when it came time to meet the mandate of the closed juvenile hall work group legislation to do a case file review, we were able to leverage that opportunity created by the pandemic to work on that contract with AIR to get this project done. If we had not been able to collaborate with DCYF and AIR, this report would not have been done, and I don't believe we would have met the mandate of the closed juvenile hall work group. So I want to say that that collaboration with AIR and the Burns Institute and the needs assessment subcommittee was very productive, and I'm grateful that we came up with this work product. And again, I encourage you all to read the full report, um, and I will also make sure to send the Burns analysis as well. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Maria. I heard all the, the reports too, and I've seen the longer report. I'm still interested in Roger's response to my questions. And I would like to say that whatever we're doing with the conclusions of all this data, um, and I still would like to know what the full cost was, no matter who's bearing the cost, whether it's DCYF, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, uh, yeah, anyway, I'd like to hear Roger uh, respond and I'd like to figure out how meaningful this report and this enormous effort, the days and days and days of effort is going to be in informing what we do next. Because so far, and I've gone to every closed juvenile hall working group meeting, I've heard every presentation on this, I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see a recommendation about 707Bs and what we should do. I don't see a recommendation about warrants and which ones should or shouldn't exist and what kind of policy we need to change. Now, maybe it's suddenly coming out at the last minute, but um, so anyway, I'd like to give Roger a chance to respond. Okay. Um, so I think you're, I think one of the questions that you asked was about, you know, how much more do we know about these young people? So uh, we did actually go, we we collected a, oh, it's not a very technical term, but a ton of information um, about the young people. And we did look at what do we, what can we glean from, uh, you know, the reports, uh, you know, uh, and all the risk assessment data um, about, you know, what was happening in the family, their backgrounds. We we collected information on mental health, um, uh, child welfare uh, issues. Um, we did a, a pretty in-depth analysis of the minors, the unaccompanied minors, and what was going on with those cases too. So, um, so I do think, I, I do think that, um, there is quite a bit there. One of the things that I think is 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 particularly interesting is we looked at then for these subgroups of cases, what the what in terms of outcomes, right? Like what happens next to them? Like how many of those kids, and which are the kids that come back again, that get rearrested again, or are back in detention again, or there's another warrant issued again too? Because I think you know, in terms of guiding, you know, what you know, which are the kids that you really need to figure out some alternative to the detention center versus those who, you know, they they could be managed in the community um, without you know that that option there too. Um, I didn't we. I don't we don't offer recommendations in the report. I, I didn't feel like that was our um, our role here, um, but I am certainly willing to um, answer questions uh, that might lead to recommendations based on what we know from the data. Um, so I would, you know, again, invite you to look at the at the larger report. It is pretty and, and detailed and 
you know, feel free to to reach out with questions. Um, I'm, I'm happy to. And I apologize if I misunderstood what you were interested in me focusing on today. I thought it was really about the 707B and the warrant. So that is really all I talked about tonight. But um, so I apologize if I if that was my misunderstanding. Margaret, you Commissioner Rodkin, you're on mute. Yeah, I specifically asked about that. You were right, and I asked about it because that's who's in our detention facility, and that's who you know comprises most of these kids. And the more we understand about them, the the more we can have policies that prevent them from being detained. So I, I just, I guess I'm expressing my personal frustration with the closed juvenile hall working group with how, whoever is responsible for what, but I have not seen the kind of recommendations that I would hope we have. Maybe it came out in a report today at which, you know, nobody in the public got a copy of um, <laughs> that, 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 that demonstrate you know, what we learn from this, that's going to change our policies. And, and if I could offer commissioner Brodkin, I you know, I think that 1 path we could take here in the commission is with the commissioners having the full report that you've already seen yourself. Right? So, you know, how much is in it? Um, I would say if uh, for the, all the commissioners to have time to review it. I think we could go through the exercise here of identifying which things really speak to us because, you know, uh, Roger to Commissioner Rodkin's point, there are there are things in the report that when I read it, I thought, well, this needs to inform this piece of work or that. That was not AIR's job at all to do. That is our job collectively, right? To say, what does the data tell us and how are we going to address it? Um, and so I think it would be great to share with the commission and then let's come back and have that conversation. We may or not need. AIR to come back for that with us, but like they are now laying it at our feet. And to your point, Commissioner, if that's not being addressed in other forums, then let's talk about how it informs the work we do in the next handful of months, right? Which is why I think it does make sense to bring this information uh, to all of you. Were there other comments or questions by other commissioners? I, this is, I, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, it's always an event for me when I, I hear that uh, Commissioner Brockens is is um, clearly agitated and and um, <laughs> dissatisfied um, in um, with 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 great purpose in terms of of um, you know, in terms of the, um, the working group, but, but, um, you know, I wasn't here. This is some of this is, is new to me in the sense that I wasn't here when the, the, um, the contracts or the scope of, um, what this report. And this, you know, study was to provide, but it will say this. That it would also appear. Um, that there's sort of two tracks that were that were at least two tracks that we're working on in terms of the closure of the hall. There is a legislative um, mandate, so to speak, if you want to call it that out. Perhaps it's too strong a term, but for the sake of, of argument, 
that the the hall is to be closed or there is to be a plan for closure and a time certain um, date, correct? Um, and then there's just the policy piece, which I think that where I'm, I'm hearing from Commissioner Brockens that we, we need, you know, a little more meat and bones here. And the question is, is who to put the meat on the bones? Maybe it was to come from this report. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. And then what the jurisdiction is, uh, uh, does that really sort of fall more within the jurisdiction of this commission to take the data and then to determine what are the appropriate policies? Certainly with the the chief and 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 their department. So, to me, even with my my question is, um, certainly. If we're up against a legislative um, requirement, which is not likely to be satisfied by December 2021, um, what are the, I, I wanna, maybe not at this moment, but maybe once we have a chance to vet and see the fuller report, we're still gonna be back to what are the recommendations, right? In in terms of right that that um, Commissioner Brockens is is bringing up, but on the legislative track, that is really to me more operational. You know, how do we? Is your expectation, Commissioner Brockens, that this report, along with um, what James Bell um, at Hayward Institute that they're doing, is to actually forward some recommendations, um, policy recommendations? Is it to um, forward, what is the scope? Is it to forward operational recommendations, which I doubt in terms of those, what are the nuts and bolts of actually downsizing or closing or eliminating juvenile hall? So I, I think it's really important that we, my, my point is, is that that we're all on the same page in terms of what the scope is of what these studies and what the reckon what where we'll what we'll be hearing from the Hayward Institute is to comprise. What 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 are the scopes? And I'm not, asking, not look, looking for an answer this moment. Sorry to laugh, Andrea, but you're struggling with what everybody's struggling with. Who's responsible for what? Once we say, for instance, that one half of the 707 Bs really don't need to be detained. If, if most of them never get their petitions sustained, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. you know, who gets to say that? And then whose job is it to sort of, you know, make policies that that mm -hmm. will change that. Allegedly, this mm -hmm. is the job of the closed juvenile hall working group, but it, it falls within the jurisdiction of this commission too. All of it falls within the jurisdiction yeah. of the commission. So if I might, yeah. not to belabor the point, um, um, what other data are we, should we be expecting or information within a period of time, within a reasonable period of time, that will then help the commission to make any particular determination in terms of what policy changes that we would recommend along, you know, with the chief. Um, so I'm just trying to get a feel for what more is there to come and within the scope of whatever the, they're contracted to do, but ultimately 
those decisions fall that, that's not the, that's not the, the, the policy decisions are not that of the working group is my understanding they have no they can make some recommendations but ultimately that falls within our official jurisdiction well i think our chief would have an answer to that too but my answer is that allegedly and this study was to be a big part of the information in Apparently. the closed juvenile hall working group. What's going to happen is that by the end of October, we're going to get the full report, which supposedly will be informed by all of this data about mm -hmm. who these kids are and with mm -hmm. recommendations about who should be locked up and who shouldn't. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think it's up to the commission <laughs> to look at I, I, to look at that and say, did we get what we need out of this? What kinds of policies do we, as a commission, want to make in response to this? But but, but if one one more thing, and I'm sorry because I, I do think that this is critical. I think that what, what Margaret is saying is very is is very critical. But it, we also seem like we're in a chicken versus egg kind of deal. Okay, so we've got this legislation that is basically uh, mandating that we work towards the closure of the hall. Um, but but what but the the question for me is, what spurred even that that legislation? What were what was the data or the evidence based analysis or whatever that that spurred that? It sounds like we've got this legislation now. We have to go make a case that meets the demands of the legislation to close the hall. So how relevant is it in a really hard not kind of way, how relevant is any of this information if the legislation stands that demands that we have a plan to close the hall? So that's why I say there's a legislative trap which is the operations and you know how we're actually going to make this this thing work and then there's the policy track not that they are divorced but i'm trying to understand what more do we need to know i'm not i'm not interested that's not to say i'm not interested in knowing more and understanding as you're saying what tell me more about these youth right but what difference does it make if we are up against a legislative mandate that apparently came from somewhere. I'm presuming that it was based on some other data and information that said, okay, let's have a legislative piece that says it's time now to close the law. So what more do we need to know? You know, I, I will not then? presume to answer that question. All I can say is that our <laughs> chief has been artfully balancing a role. I can imagine. Multiple, multiple, uh venues with conflict not conflicting overlapping potentially conflicting you know mandates and mm -hmm. i will say she has been very artful in doing this she might have a good answer for you i don't um but <laughs> yeah good question <laughs> um i uh i don't know whether artful is um nice or judgmental in how Commissioner Ryan <laughs> has just used it. Um, I'm going to take it as a compliment. 
Um, but this is, I think this is what I would say at this point, um, and uh, so that we can release AIR back out of our meeting this evening. Um, you know, uh, to Commissioner Brodkin's point, and, and I think the reason, Commissioner Brodkin, that you brought up these two themes, right, that AIR then brought to this group, the warrants and out-of-home placements, we know, so what the legislation says is that we want to make sure we're using alternatives to detention as much as possible for our kids. And then for the kids who do need to be detained, we need to think new and different about what that space looks like. Like that's that's my most basic interpretation of the legislation. Um, and what this data tells us is that two groups of young people, and this is and they are overlapping, who find them, who we often find, and you see it month after month, all of you in the hall, often for extended periods, are young people coming in because of placement failure and young people coming in on warrants. And again, those are often the same young people. Um, and that we need to explore more what it means, what 707B offenses means, because we know it means an automatic detention. And I think that part of what AIR's analysis does is raise for us the, the questions and the, um, the clear like sign that we need to understand more what that means. And it can mean a lot of different things. A case may not, a 707 case may not result in a sustained petition because we just dismiss it because the kid's already on probation with us and we don't need to go after that new case, right? It may settle for something lower because that's the policy we generally have in San Francisco, even if the behavior was a righteous robbery. Or it may not have been what we any of us would consider a robbery. So there's a lot of nuance. That, that, that is a very tricky issue. It has legal implications, it has statutory implications, and it has a lot of police education implications. Mm -hmm. right. So it's worth identifying that issue. And then I think that's way beyond the scope of just probation because we do need to be having those conversations within the entirety of our justice system with the court, with the lawyers, with the police on when they decide to uh, book a kid on a robbery versus a lesser offense that wouldn't require them to be detained, right? So that's one whole bucket. Where I do think this kind of analysis is very helpful for all of us is it drives home the point that by having better out-of-home placement options for our kids, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in my chief's report, um, if we get to that tonight, <laughs> so, um, you know, that having that right array of options can mean that kids are not waiting in custody when they don't need to be. And second, this idea of looking at what, uh, looking at warrants and are there other models around warrants that this jurisdiction can use? So some jurisdictions, for example, have tiers of warrants where a court may issue a certain kind of warrant that says this kid has to come into custody no matter what if they come into police contact. But they may have a second tier of warrants that says Hey, probation, if this kid gets picked up and you can figure out where they need to go, that's not the hall, don't bring them in. So, sorry, sorry. So we don't have that here right now, but that's something I think that we don't have it formally, but I think it's something that the court is very interested in considering. So I bring that up to say that this kind of data definitely gives us pathways that we need to all go down, right? And like close the loop on those, actually have that conversation about how to have the right kinds of warrants that don't put kids in the hall when the judge really just may want them to be checking back in, right? That we have the right placement options. So th that is how this, I think, Commissioner Shorter comes back to all of us to talk about within probation's purview. And then of course, in partnership with community and our other partners, 
how do we make decisions, develop programs, tackle legislation when we need to, and work with the courts to um, to address those uh, like the faucets that are bringing kids in and keeping them here. So that's where I think it's helpful for all of us. I do think that um, the larger report does give you a sense of a lot of other aspects of the lives of the kids that were in the hall during this time period. Um, the limitation of this is not at all on AIR, it's that they were looking at a very unique moment in our collective universe, right? Which was this year, kids detained during the pandemic. And that's may not be reflective of generally, but it still tells us about those kids and their very real lives. Um, so I would, so that's why I think if we all look at it, it's worth us then saying as a group, like, what does this tell us? One thing it tells me, for example, um, and this is why we want to suggest to you all that we look at our detention screening instrument at, for the next deep dive next month. I will get to that soon. Um, is that, you know, there may be decisions or judgments we're making about kids' lives that are affecting detention decisions or risk assessments that we may want to relook at, right? So there, there's information in that larger report that I think you all will find interesting, relevant to the work of probation, and of course, to how we connect to the broader world. In terms of the question about legislation, um, you know, it is a balance for us between working with that legislation, being a good partner, faithfully carrying out the intent of it to the best of our ability and in partnership, but also really waiting on the board to make some decisions about that. And we will not be able to do uh, some of it until they get their report that they will get and make decisions that they will make. I'll pause and see if you guys want to talk more about the AI report or if you want to talk about the Chief's report. Up to you. Did any other commissioner have questions or comments? Hearing none. Um, I did have one quick question as to the number of warrants that was addressed in, I forget which slide now, but uh, there was a slide regarding warrants and, and some youth having up to five. I just wanted to double check that those were over time and cumulative and not one youth having five warrants open at once, which would seem a little bit odd to me. So those were over time and um, yeah, so not in fact, it is pretty common for a young person to have two warrants open at the same time. So what will happen is, you know, they'll, you know, they'll pick up, they'll get a warrant because they violated, you know, their, their home detention or, and then they'll miss a court hearing while they're, you know, not while they're out on runaway status. Uh, and so they'll, then there will be a bench warrant too. So we only counted that as one warrant. So in ours, so if they had two concurrently, we that we only counted that as one. So these were, um, yeah. So so if that helps answer your question, it does. Thank you. And I wanted to pick up on something that Chief Miller just mentioned: uh, the idea of tiered warrants in the dependency world. We have protective custody warrants, and that's essentially, I think, what you were alluding to when judges or maybe POs want to just check in and make sure that the youth that we're servicing is doing okay, that they don't need any medical assistance or something like that, just because no one has interacted with them in a while. 
Um, I don't know, forgive my ignorance, if that's something that we have in the probation world. Um, I, I see heads shaking. Not in that way right now. Um, there are times, though, I will say, Commissioner where, or Vice President, too, where um, the court will say to probation officers, I'm issuing this warrant, but put it back on calendar if you have an alternative plan, right? So that's kind of the informal way it's held, handled now here, but there are more formal ways to do it by all of us collectively saying this kind of order from the court can mean X for a young person and a different one can mean Y, and let's all talk about what that can look like. And there's some other jurisdictions that offer us some good guidance. Um, and I think there's a lot of interest here in looking at those models. I think that would be really great. Um, what I'm hearing sort of my takeaway from a lot of the conversation so far tonight is that. How do we implement if we have this idea that there are perhaps other warrants, even just a, a different name? I think words have a lot of power. And so if you name it, uh, just a protective custody warrant, it sounds a little bit more gentle and understanding and, and concerned, um, rather than punitive, which I think is generally a goal that we should all have. And then. But how do we implement that on our own? Right? And so 1 of the other things I hear is perhaps some of these 707B offenses should not have should not carry mandatory detentions. I, I think I've mentioned this last time. I'm not sure that we as the commission have the power to do that. Certainly not just ourselves, um, but that we would need to perhaps do some policy advocacy to amend the statutes that control and dictate what's mandatory, what's not, how things are defined. Um, these are really big issues though. So perhaps um, I think one of our later agenda items is to host a retreat Perhaps policy advocacy can be something that we um, we talk about then, and all these big ideas. I think having having clearer statutes would go a long way. Um, I also wanted to really comment on the great discussion between Commissioner Brodkin and Commissioner Shorter. And one of the great questions by Commissioner Shorter was, was there any data regarding the reason or motivation for the alleged offenses? Um, and I heard that there, this, this information may, may not be in the case files that were reviewed. And I'm wondering if this would, I also, as a former public defender, have concerns about asking that kind of question to um, a youth. But I, I wonder if that might be a conversation that would be good for a social worker. Um, or someone to sort of more neutral to ask um, our sort of incoming youth. And if there's if there's a procedure set up for that, um, I think one of the overall questions that we focus on is sort of intake and what happens there and what can we do there to really support our youth. And that might be one of the things that we can build into our intake procedure to show that there is concern and support and not just punitive or not even just, but not punitive intentions behind uh, the probation, juvenile probation. And and I think, Commissioner, I think, you know, assessment is a really big question. And, and you know, it's worth noting that as a general rule, the young people coming to do their intake with the probation officer have been advised by their attorney to not speak at all about the incident. And so, um, which I completely understand as an attorney, but I also will say that then for for a probation officer who may be trying to understand the need behind a behavior, um, they may not be able to have that conversation. It may be the social worker or the defense attorney who may hear more of it in some cases. And some certainly sometimes young people will talk to their POs about that, depending on their relationship. But generally, they are counseled 
uh, not to. Right. It just really just to really clarify, I my presumption was because there was this was just basically reading files, right? I, yeah. So when I proposed that earlier, let me be clear. I didn't have in mind that you actually were talking with the youth. I might have misspoke, but I was presuming that within those case files that there might have been, you know, some information um, relative to why was it, you know, and yeah, Katie is absolutely, uh, the chief is absolutely right. Certainly as an attorney, you know, you would advise your client not to talk about it. Um, and certainly we would need to be very careful in terms of what information we're gleaning from the files. But I was just wondering if there was any kind of pattern or, you know, that you observed in terms of, you know, 15 out of the 26, you know, or something, you know, this was, this was a reason why that was cited or that, you know, young people said, I, I robbed someone, I was hungry, I was whatever, I needed cash or, I, I don't know, that's all I was looking for. So yeah, I totally understand, you're not talking with the young people and then certainly they would be advised and there's only so much that you could actually glean from the files but I would imagine within those files that there's often, uh, at least my experience has been, um, some indication from the youth as to why um, they might have been involved um, in the alleged incident. That's all. Thank you for that clarification, Commissioner Shorter. Any other commissioners have questions or comments? Yeah, I just I have a comment. So um actually I can understand Commissioner Rocket 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 Rocking's um frustration, right? This juvenile shut down juvenile hall committee came along what two years ago? I can't even imagine how much money has been spent grabbing data and getting different data and just, just the whole process of, and, you know, just being in, you know, I've been to a few of the meetings and just the whole process of the frustration. And at the end of the day, where, where, where are we really from where we started from? So, I mean, that, you know, it, that, that in itself is just frustrating. So I definitely want to, you know, commend commissioner Brockett for making all the meetings, you chief Miller. I, commend you all for just going to the meetings. I've been in the meetings and I understand. I just like, wow, at the end of the day, for me and being in the community and doing the work that I do, right? It's just, it is just so frustrating sometimes to hear, you know, what comes out of that, you know? And it's just like, you know, it hasn't, the needle really hasn't moved at all. You know, I don't care how much data you grab or what all that. So, you know, I mean, sometimes for me, it's more like, you know, you'd have been, you know, maybe we'd have been better off doing some community forms, asking some moms and some dads and some community, like, you know, we spent all two years of doing that. I think we'd have been better off asking some moms, some dad and some community members well, how do we do this? What's the best, you know, what, which way should we go, right, at the end of the day? So for me, is, 
I get it. You know, I get it, Commissioner Brockett. It's just frustrating, you know, at the end of the day, like how far have we moved the needle at, at getting to any point, whether it's going to close, whether we find a new facility, whether, you know, the alternative, you know, like, you know, the people moving out of San Francisco and the whole time that we're having these meetings, the same things are happening over and over and over again, you know, the same, you know, the same crimes are being committed, the same families are having the same issues. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, some of that money we could have taken instead of doing all this data, we should have taken some of that money and get put it into some of these families for some support. So, you know, it's, just, it's frustrating, you know, at some point. So I get it, Commissioner Brockett, like I know it, um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, what's the end result, right? Like, where do we, where do we land? I mean, at the end, we're going to end up putting this off, putting it over for another two years or another year. Um, and we're going to just keep collecting data and going through data. And it's just like, you know, what does that do to the family that's struggling or the kid that's having new issues where he have to commit a crime or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, so I get it. And, you know, that's just, it's just, at the end of the day, you know, if we spend all our time in these rooms and these meetings, what happens to the, that, you know, young person out there that's, you know, in trouble? So it's just, it's just frustrating. I get it. And I appreciate you all for going to the meetings and having, <laughs> and having the patience to sit up in them, you know? So it's just like, for me, it's just, wow, I'm, you know, I don't have it. Um, they wear me down and I'm not even in the meetings. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's a lot, you guys. It's a lot. And, you know, at the end of the day, what's what's best for our young people? What's best for our families? What's best? You know, and that's just the question that's need to be asked. What's best for these for these kids at the end of the day? What's best for this mom? What's best for this dad? You know, what's best for these families, you know? And taking some of that funding we spend in doing all this data collecting and, you know, let's, let's invest well, into some of these communities. So that's just my two cents. That's it. Mr. Yes. It, 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 it sounds like we, we're not done yet. We, we it, ain't, it ain't over yet. Um, so we want to be really clear. And, and also, I think that uh, that one of the the vice um, president has indicated a recommendation. Certainly, we move towards one retreat so that we can, um, um, as I understood her, I just am trying to reiterate um, what was proposed. Um, I heard her mention a retreat um, where certainly we, we we have our work to still still to do even in relation to the air um, the AIR report um, because this was just as he as Roger has presented this isn't the total report he was just hitting some of the high notes of portions of the report so we all now have the report in hand and it sounds as though that. We our, our task is to certainly um, review the um, report and 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 thorough, um, and then we have is my understanding that the report from the Haywood Institute is separate, right, and is still forthcoming. Is that correct? Okay, so we still, we still have um, ways to go. I think that the data. Um, um, from what Roger has presented again, him today just hitting the high notes. Um, there's still there's useful information. It just may not have been with just may not have covered the scope um, in the way that Commissioner Brockens was was expecting. 
um, and maybe some of the, the details of what she is looking for are more within the AAR report, um, maybe not, but, um, but certainly in, uh, perhaps it will come through the Haywood Institute. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I, so we're, we're I not getting it. It sounded as though commissioner, you thought maybe we were done. This is it. We still have our homework to do to read the, the report and thorough that was pre, uh, presented in executive uh, summary um, today. And, um, and then certainly the forthcoming report from the Institute. No, Commissioner, I'm sure I wasn't. I thought, I thought what I was saying was because Commissioner Brockett was 100% right. You know, it was like, I would expect a whole lot more to come out of in all the data and the, all the money that was spent. I, I mean, she's right. 100% It's like, I expect a whole lot more to come out of that. You know, and, you know, I'm not no different than anybody else on this call. I live this every day, so I know what's going on in my community. And I don't need, you know, for me, it, it doesn't, I don't need all this data that they tell me about, you know, going through these files. I live it every day. So I, you know, I can tell you what goes on in some of these families' lives that make these young people react and do the things they do sometimes. So, you know. But do I have the answer to all of it? No, I do not. So nobody on these calls or all that data you collect does it's not gonna give you an answer. The question is, what do we do as a body, as a commission, and as a people, uh, you know, that's trying to help young people. So, you know. No, I think, you know, Commissioner Brockett had hit it on the nose. It's like no matter how much data you collect, right? What's the what's the end result of what we what's the plan uh, on the plan, you know? And what's the alternative to not having a juvenile at the end? And, you know, where do you put young people when they, you know, things happen, you know, and small mistakes are made? I don't, you know, so it's each, 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 each case is a different, you know, is a different outcome, a different scenario. Each, you know, everybody, each individual is, you know, you take it as, you know, not everyone is the same. So you're not going to solve it all. That's all I was saying. No, it is the work never ends. I don't care what way beyond us. You know, we we this is just the beginning of a conversation. But how many conversations do we have before we actually have an action that goes beyond that? You know what I mean? Well, that was it. That was my two cents. <laughs> Well, I I agree with most of what is going on. To me, I think um, the report is a little bit valuable. If we can, I wonder if we can get a copy of it just for our own record, so that we can digest it more and see what is going on. I know time is against us since um, we don't know the fate of um, juvenile um, hub being closed out. We don't even know what's going on there. So if we can get a copy of it. So we can digest it more and understand what's going on. I think that might be of help. Is it possible we can get a copy of it, the presentation, or it's classified? No, no. So the report, I think, is it's it's on its way to you. Um, so that's I think correct. You have it. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. Sorry? Thank you. 
thank you, Roger. And uh, Maria has shared it with Pauline to share with all of you commissioners. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you, Roger. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Um, do we need to take public comment on this item? Yes. Do we see any hands raised? I'll remind the public to press star three to be entered into the telephone queue or uh, folks can email or raise their hand in the WebEx app. No hands are raised at this time. Actually, I see one. There is a hand raised. I'll go ahead and yeah, unmute them. Aware. The, the uh, phone will tell you you've been unmuted. That's your time to speak, sir. Hi, this is, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Hi, yeah, this is Dan McAleer, and I thank you very much. It's good discussion tonight, folks. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that as as the former chair of the uh, closed juvenile hall data and uh, <laughs> uh, subcommittee, I want to. I just want to. You know, I want to make a point that our purpose was not just to gather data for the sake of gathering data. Uh, so many times on these committees that many of us have been involved with over the years, we spent a lot of time gathering data for no purpose, and it doesn't lead to any policy changes. And I did not want to, I was hoping that our committee would not do that. We have a lot of information that we've gathered. Um, the air report, I think, was good, and I agree with Margaret. I, I, I wish when we bring in outside consultants to do policy analysis, they do offer recommendations, should offer recommendations to, to go with that analysis. I think it's helpful for those who are sometimes unacquainted with the data or what the where the or the information to interpret it it should not just be you know it should not just be left for sometimes the unacquainted eye to try to figure out what it says now having said that i do believe that as we move forward what andreas what commissioner shorter said that um the final report will incorporate a lot of this information will hopefully inform much of the the uh committees conclusions about how to move forward. I'm hopeful that's happened, that, that has happened. I hope that it is, ju we just did not engage in a data collection exercise that goes nowhere because I know city bureaucracies like to gather lots of information, but we don't always do a good job of, of doing things with them. The juvenile probation department does a great job of gathering information. I wanna say, I just point out uh, my colleague on the committee, Maria McKee, is 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 a is a wonderful data person couldn't do better uh the question will be what do we do with this in the long run and where do we go after the committee the closed juvenile hall committee has finished its work and also what this commission does with whatever recommendations comes out of that committee because as, as was brought up earlier the the closed juvenile hall committee is not empowered to implement its recommendation. It makes recommendations. You folks, the commission, are the ones that ultimately will decide whether those policies actually become practice. So that's, I just want to say that. Thank you. Thank you. 
Was there any other public comment, hands raised, people in the telephone queue or any emails? There are not, there are not any more people. Thank you. I think that brings us to our next agenda item. Number five reports to the commission, beginning with the chief's report. Okay. Um, may I have sharing capabilities? I didn't see it yet. Let's see. Colleen, can I have the ball? Or whatever it's called now, the block, the, the I have the PowerPoint, I have it. Can folks see my screen? Yes. Fantastic. Okay, so as always, I'm going to um, take us through the cliff notes of our much longer report so that we have time to get to the other parts of tonight. Um, so I will start with our data report and I'm going to literally take us quickly through you all are, I know, very familiar at this point with uh, what the report looks like on a monthly basis. And uh, let's get started. So I'm going to start by going to slide three, which is our demographics as of yesterday. Um, we didn't do Monday because Monday was a holiday, um, but you can see that as of yesterday, there were 14 youths in the hall, 86% boys, 57% were black youth, 22% Latinx, 21% AAPI. Over half of the young people in the hall yesterday were 18 or older. Um, 65% of them were not youth who'd been ordered to out of home placement. We actually have a pretty good number of pre-adjudicated kids right now. 14% um, pending adjudication, 7% pending disposition, 14% committed to the JJC. And I wanna actually note that committed to JJC. So I think folks have known from prior meetings that we had one young person who's been in custody the last few months who had been committed to the JJC by a judge for an eight month period. Uh, that's in addition to an, another youth who earlier this spring had been committed um, on their own motion. Um, and then on yesterday, the court committed another young person to the hall for up to 12 months. Um, most likely will be much less than that based on time already served. Um, and the judge will keep will be revisiting it. But at the moment, it's a 12 month commitment. I thought that was very noteworthy and wanted to share that with all of you. I am then taking us to Six, which is admissions releases and average daily population, just to show that um, in August there were 13 admissions and 15 releases. Average daily population was 14 in the month of August. I am now going to take us to slide 12, which is average length of stay. I just want to note that the average length of stay was up, has been going up in these last couple of months. So this goes through July. Um, as you know, we always look at the average length of stay for kids who were still in on the last day of the month, but we also look at kids who were released during the month um, because it tends to capture kind of kids who go through faster and kids who stay with us longer. But they both were up quite a bit in the month of July. Um, the average length of stay for kids who were released during the course of the month was actually 52% higher than the 2020 average. The average length of stay for kids who remained in custody was 120% higher than the year before. I want to note that in both of those, and with the small number of kids we have, 
if we have a few kids who've been in the hall for a very long time, they really skew that average. So we had a few kids who actually were released during the month of July who had been with us for quite a while. Um, and so they had had a lot of days with us before they were released. And that's why you see that number um, start trending up that blue line. And then for the kids in custody, just as a reminder, among other kids, um, we have a young person who is still waiting for um, potential transport to DJJ. They've been here um, basically two years this month. And so every month they're here, they're bringing that 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 number's going up, um, as well as again some of these longer term commitments that the judges have been making. I'm going to take us now to slide 18, which is admission by primary detention reason, and this is a really important one to talk about this month because I'm sure when you looked at it, you all had a lot of questions for us. So you can see that this month um, in July, well, it's July, in July 2021, there were 13 admissions to the hall. 100% of those were mandatory. Um, three were for what's mandatory new law violations. Nine came in classified as a warrant or court order. And one was a transfer from another county. I want to talk for a minute about those warrants because I'm sure that's where your attention went. It's obviously where my attention goes as well. I'm going to give a little bit of a breakdown of the warrants. Um, so uh, out of those nine warrants, two of those warrants what are, are what are called Ramey warrants, and that's actually when the police go to the DA and get a warrant for a new offense. So they come in to us technically as a warrant, but it is for a new offense, and it's the police going to the DA saying, we have the evidence that we want to go make this arrest. We, we need you to go get a warrant from the court. And then with that warrant, they go out and arrest the young person. So they are considered a warrant on this list, but they really are, um, in essence, truly a new law violation. That is what is bringing the young person in. Um, and then three of these were AWOLs from placements. Three of the young people who came in in the month of July were um, unaccompanied minors who had warrants previously. So they had warrants out in the system. They came to the attention of police um, for drug sales in the Tenderloin. So the police were doing a lot more um, uh, arrest activities this summer in the Tenderloin, um, drug sale arrest activities operations. Um, and I just wanna remind all of us that generally, if the police arrest a young person, an unaccompanied minor on something like a drug offense, on any offense that does not require detention, um, our, our policy and our effort over the last year has been not to detain them, but instead to either send them to Huckleberry House or another kind of shelter or community arrangement. In this case, these were young people who came to the attention of the police because of that activity, but they did have warrants. And, be, and so we saw a number of young people in that situation coming through in July and a little bit in August. They were here very briefly, but I wanted to give that context why you see so many warrants cases coming in during that month. Um, I'm gonna take us to slide 22 which is probation, CARC, and make it right referrals. So in July, there were 27 referrals to probation, 13 were for felonies, eight were for misdemeanors, six were for warrants and probation violations, um, and then four CARC referrals. And no, the DA didn't send any cases to make it right in July. I just want to note that overall, and you can see it from the chart, the number of referrals that came in in July were really on the lower end of the numbers we've seen across the months since January of 2020. I'm going to take us now to slide 24, 
um, our active caseload. So you can see that in the last three months from May, June, July, we've been pretty steady around 300 cases. Um, part of the decline right before that was um, us making the taking the effort to make sure we were closing out cases that sat with um, the CARC probation officer, for example, that still weren't that weren't active anymore. Um, but you can see that we've hit this kind of stabilization in these last uh, three months. And I just wanted to highlight that for you. And then I want to go to 27, which is uh, active caseload by caseload average, uh, active caseload by average caseload size. Um, so the average caseload size for what we're calling case manager, which could be either a probation officer or a social worker here at probation, was 15 youth. Um, the highest caseloads were our um, reentry and AB12 caseloads, are, are on um, non-minor dependents. Um, and they each had 36 youth on average. And it's and I want to note where it says CARC only has three youth. Um, this is actually uh, this has been a real point of transition for us. So we do not anymore have a case uh, probation officer at CARC. And I'll speak a little bit later to some of our organizational changes. What we've done is with the remaining cases um, that are open in CARC, um, which is about 10, we've split them across our three on-duty probation officers. So we have three on-duty POs who are here at night and on weekends. And so we're having them each take the remaining CARC cases where there is still probation work that is required. So any work that's not required, those cases have been closed out. But in the CARC cases where there is a probation purpose, we're making sure they completed um, graffiti abatement or some kind of a program, um, we have split those among case uh, our on-duty probation officers who attend to that work during the shifts that they're here. And then I want to take us to slide 33, which is our placement. So this is placement through August and just want to highlight what we see as a trend that I think we all really um, are supportive of in these meetings and conversations which is the reliance on resource families and less reliance on group homes. And so I just want to note that you can see it here in August. We had six young people in STRTPs, group homes. We had 10 with resource families. That either means um, their own family member or a foster, an approved foster placement. Um, and wanted to highlight that again, it's something that I know we've all talked about a lot here and just note that continuing an important trend. And then I wanted to take us finally to the deep dives chart, which is for deep dive slide, which is slide 42, what we were proposing to do um, in the next few months. So this month we're looking at um, the, a historical look at our referrals to CBOs and programs that will be coming up next in our deep dive. And we wanted to suggest for the upcoming meetings that in October we look at our detention risk instrument. So what do we see and how we're scoring and making the decision about which kids need to be detained? It seems really timely for this conversation in the city and for all of us to have, especially if you're going to be inheriting some of the next steps around juvenile hall. Um, and then in November, we wanted to offer up having a conversation about girls. So much of this conversation focuses on boys. Obviously, they make up the most of the kids in um, the hall and on probation, but we know that our girls have unique needs and we want to make sure that we are talking about that here. I think we have some really important voices that we'd like to include in the conversation um, and we'd like to do some deep dive. I'll remind everybody that when we do look at um, disproportionality of kids in the hall, um, 
when you look at the numbers, it looks like it's black boys, but when you actually look at who is the most disproportionately impacted in San Francisco and elsewhere by juvenile hall detentions, it's black girls. And so I want to make sure that we have space for a conversation about girls and we'd like to offer that up. I also think it's relevant as we start the process, which I'll talk about a little later of getting some more uh, resource families online as a new option for shelter for our kids. So that's what we would like to offer to you. Um, I can and pause for questions on the monthly report, or I can hand it over to Selena to go down our deep dive. Um, Vice President Chu, what would you like me to do? I think it makes sense to see if there are any comments or questions from the other commissioners on the chief's report first before we get into the deep dive. Do any of the commissioners have questions or comments? I don't see anyone raising their hand. Um, okay. I was, I, so then I'm, I'm going to jump in then, Chief. Um, <laughs> I, I was wondering on slide 16, um, Mm -hmm. It seems. Oh, oh, sorry. Sixteen. Thank you. Maybe I took notes on the wrong slide. Um, oh. it was sixteen. I I thought that Is there it, was. I'm sorry. Was it one of the ones I covered, Commissioner? I don't think so. Um, I would have highlighted it. I there was. I think a chart that showed um, the comparison, maybe it was the average length of stay for our black youth and our AAPI youth. And I just made a note to myself that I am curious as to com the comparison to our white youth. I think context would be helpful. Maybe it is this one though. Um, I would say, yeah. So I would actually say that you know, the number of white youth that have been detained since the, since I came to this department is so small commissioner that it wouldn't even register as a data point. Interesting. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, Chief Miller, you'll <laughs> like this comment. My next, uh, my next comment and notes when I was reviewing this was looking at slide 16 and 18 and it, it looked to me like there were four non-mandatory detentions um, where the DRI score was over 11. And so my question is, when are we going to do the DRI deep dive? So I fully support doing that for our October meeting. Um, Fantastic. <laughs> uh, I was looking at also slide 40. It seemed to me that, uh, and maybe again, I was misreading it, but it seemed to me like 29% of the disposition were dismissals which, um, oh, maybe not. I don't, was I looking at a different numbered version? Hmm. I, I know what you're talking about. Okay. It's on a different, yeah. Um, this one? No. Maybe it was back to, well, I, I guess the, the, that I 
saw was it seems like about 30% or 29% of the dispositions were dismissals, which to me mm -hmm. indicates that 29% of the youth that were making contact with should not have been detained, should not have been brought into this process. I, I say this each time that wow. each exposure is um, it's traumatic. And if it's if they're being dismissed, and I, I know we have a conversation each time about the reasons that the cases are dismissed are for such varied reasons. Um, but I would really like to limit or tamp down on the number of contacts and um, exposures to the juvenile probation system that we can. Essentially, if, the, if they're avoidable, let's avoid them. Um, certainly avoid any contact with law enforcement if that's not necessary, because that is traumatic. And second, to avoid any initial detention or arrest. Um, Sure, and and so and I'll say, and Maria may have some more insight on this, but one thing that I'll note, Commissioner, two things. One is that that's not necessarily a, a you know, youth who was detained. That's just any petition. So some of them would be for out of custody youth too, and that reflects the dismissal at any stage. So it could be that at that first hearing, the judge says, "Wow, there's like no there there. I'm just dismissing it." But just as likely, and often more likely, it's because the judge may have the young may want to see the young person. Kind of get into a case plan, start doing something, hook up with an organization, and then once they see that, they'll just dismiss the case as kind of successfully resolved without making it through adjudication, which is a good thing. So it can mean a lot of different things, and I think that you're totally right that you know our focus should always be: Did we have a youth penetrate the system any farther than we needed to? Is there a way we could have done it without being in court? Um, where it gets tricky is when it is a case that the law requires us to bring to the DA that we don't have the authority to divert ourselves, right? So any felony for a youth 14 and up um, and any uh, second or more felony for a youth 13 and up, we have to bring to the DA if it's brought to us. But Maria, is there anything else that I missed on that? I just wanted to add that since Commissioner Chu first raised this at maybe even her first hearing, um, my colleague Selena Cuevas and I have been working on it because just as Chief Miller said, this lumps together all dismissals that happen at any point post petition being filed. And so we've been working, we've been getting tutorials from Judge Chan and I have this crazy flow chart and the juvenile justice case process is more convoluted than the adult one um, about basically all of the off roads um, and there, as Chief Miller said, there can be dismissals that happen um, like post referral to JPD, pre district attorney filing. The DA can refer youth to informal probation if that's successful, it will result in a dismissal. So, and that keeps happening along the way. So, I would say that the majority of dismissals are actually probably successful completion of either informal probation or formal probation. And then a small number of them are evidentiary dismissals um, requested by the district attorney's office or imposed by the court. Um, so we, now that I have my crazy flow chart, I actually have a meeting next Tuesday to go over that with our amazing um, lead support staff person to figure out how we can make, ensure that we're tracking the data points for all of those really nuanced case outcomes so that we can start reporting to you exactly that. And to your earlier point, also to see how often are we seeing young people have interactions with the police department that don't even result in a petition being filed at all. So it's coming and I appreciate your attention to that detail. Thank you, Maria. I super appreciate the work you're doing. Um, I think I, I had just one last 
question slash comment. I, I do remember, and I think all of us remember that there are one or two outlier cases that kind of skew the trends each time. Um, I don't want to ask you to do more work, uh, and, and yet I might. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of curious if we could do an analysis uh, that takes out those outliers, because I was going to ask, it seemed like there was an uptick in the average length of stay. And, and to be honest, I can't tell how much of that is. Is there a reason for that? Or is that because there's another, like one other outlier case that came in and, and that, you know, two outliers is completely screwing the data, skewing the data. Um, so I, I'm just wondering if, if maybe you wouldn't mind if we could do sort of a, a, a trend line sure. that doesn't have those outliers sort of influencing, over-influencing the trend. We can definitely do that. Thank you. Did any other commissioner have questions on this or should we uh, go into the deep dive? I think it's at 7.20, I think it's time for the deep dive. Okay. Um, it's also good timing because Selena this entire time has been dealing with a fire alarm in her building and is now finally back with us. So perfect timing. Um, and I want to and welcome back, Selena. Thank you. I'm about to start having to do like interpretive dances for all of you. But um, I will say that uh, just by way of introducing this deep dive, um, that you know this is something that we're very excited to share in the interest of kind of transparency and where do we go from here. So this is really a, obviously a retroactive look at what kinds of referrals um, into services have looked like in this last time period that Selena will be reporting on and I think Gabe will be reporting a little bit too. Um, so it's look, backward looking. We know this is um, a, a kind of a baseline for us all to use to inform where we go from here. And I wanna just really acknowledge that background. Um, and then I also want to acknowledge that they'll be walking through, like, what does a referral even mean? Who generates it? All those kinds of things. Um, but it's just what we hope to be the beginning of conversation, um, and not and then not kind of an endorsement for anybody up here with you tonight that this is um, how we want things to look as we move forward. And I will hand it over to Selena. Selena, you are on mute. I said, thank you, Chief Miller. Can someone pass me the sharing abilities? Cool. One second. All right. I think you all should be able to see my screen. Um, I'm actually going to kick it off to Gabe Calvillo to start us off um, on this first slide. One second. Okay. Got it. Thank you, Selena. <clears throat> uh, good evening, Commissioners, President Chu, uh, Gabe Calvillo, the Director of Probation Services. Thank you for allowing me to uh, present on this slide here. So I'm going to be going over the um, probation program referral and data entry process. But before I do, I just want to give you guys a little information. So this report only refer, uh, reflects um, referrals from probation services. It doesn't reflect juvenile hall programming or programs that young people have already been connected to, um, prior, to prior to becoming involved with the probation department. 
Also, as it relates to the SCRAM and home detention numbers, you're going to see slides later on in the presentation that show um, <clears throat> the referrals to SCRAM and home detention and electronic monitoring um, that are really high. And this is for a couple of reasons. During the early stages of the pandemic, the court used electronic monitoring GPS as a, as a mechanism to expedite releases from juvenile hall and also as um, a supervision strategy to um, as an alternative to detention. So you'll see those numbers later on in, in the presentation, but I just wanted to let you know those two things prior to getting started. So as it relates to program, uh, excuse me, pro uh, program referrals, the probation department, the program referrals are initiated and facilitated by the probation officer. Programs can be court order, they can originate from the risk needs assessment or from the case plans or the CFT meetings that are held by the probation departments. Um, and while most referrals occur during intake, referrals can also happen during the supervision process, <clears throat> excuse me, as the young person presents different needs, the probation officer will you know, meet those needs with an intervention or referral to a community-based organization to assist with those needs a couple of months later after the uh, inter, um, intake process. So what happens then is once the referral is accepted by the CBO, um, data entry is done by the DPO or the support staff and they enter that information into our case management system. That information includes the program that they were referred to, the start of the program, and if there are any specified time frame that the young person will have to participate in said program. Once that's done and the young person is going to be terminated from the program for any reason, whether it's uh, completing all of their deliverables or if they fail to engage, um, the outcome data is received from stakeholders and entered into Audemon um, to terminate the program. Each specific CBO has their own criteria for what um, defines um, success. Any questions on the referral process? Why don't you go through that entire presentation and yeah. we'll do questions at the end. I am trying to figure out how to have it not share weird. Clearly that fire alarm threw me off my game. I'm sorry about that. Okay, is this better or is this the wrong screen? Okay, I think this is finally the way it should look. Um, That's right. Okay, thank goodness. Okay. All right, so now that there is that background of what the process is for referring a youth to a program and data entry, I think it's helpful to start off with just, you know, a visual aid of what the program's data looks on, like on our end that can help orient you at all as we are going through the data. So on our end, each row in the program's data represents a separate program referral. So one young person in multiple programs will be in multiple rows of the data. Um, each row starts with a young person's PIN number, which is their unique identifier 
number in the system that can be used to link this data with other data, such as demographic data. Um, the data also includes provider and program. So both provider and program are tracked as some providers overlap in the programs that they provide. So for example, several providers have RAP programs, and then also several providers offer multiple programs. This next variable program type um, is the type of program that the specific program is binned in. So currently programs can only be tracked as one program type, even though many provide several types of services, uh, something that I will touch on a little bit more when we look at the data later. We also capture start and termination dates in order to determine length of stay in the program. So termination from a program is either successful or unsuccessful. Um, and until a program is terminated, that termination date, that outcome stays open. Termination dates and outcomes are not determined by JPD. They're determined by the program themselves. So once we get that information that a program's been terminated, that's entered into the data. And this last variable here on the right-hand side, referred by, um, it captures referral source and this is a new variable that captures whether programs originated from a JPD referral or an outside referral. So a lot of times young people will already be connected to a program that they weren't connected to by JPD, but we wanna be able to keep track of, you know, the full myriad of programs that young people are involved with. I just wanna highlight here that because it's such a new variable, um, it's not something that we can really break down in the data tonight, but it will be in future presentations. And going off of that, it's helpful to show how the programs tracking at JPD within our case management system has evolved over time. So in 2020 was when there was really just a concerted effort to reliably start tracking probation program referrals. Um, so from the beginning of 2020 is when we feel that this data is really reliable. Um, and so th that is the focus of this presentation, just probation program referrals. We have since also started tracking DA diversion programs. Um, as I mentioned in the last slide, tracking outside program referrals, tracking juvenile hall programming, um, also doing a monthly QA of programs data. So having units um, make sure that all programs that young people are involved in are actually in the data. Um, but all of these newer efforts are not captured in the data that we're showing right now. Again, because it's an iterative process that we're going to, through to make sure that this data is um, accurate and reliable. And something that we'll talk about towards the end of this presentation is like where we wanna go towards the future. And that is a centralized referral system. So to go over the data real quickly, um, the data covers all probation program referrals um, to community-based organizations from the start of 2020 through mid-year 2021. So due, again, due to reliability concerns, data prior to 2020 has been excluded from this analysis. Um, this data does not include the programs that youth are involved with due to outside referrals or self-referrals. So this presentation will not represent the full set of programs that youth may be involved with, or even that the probation officer is aware of when developing a case plan. Um, again, we've recently designed a process for tracking these programs 
and can present on that in the future. This data also does not include juvenile hall programming because this data was not tracked in our case management system Automon until recently. But again, something that we would like to report on in the future. And just as I mentioned in the prior slide, the data is organized and so it's presented at the program referral level unless otherwise specified that it is at the youth level. And so first to start off here is um, just aggregate numbers of probation program referrals by organization from the beginning of 2020 through mid-year 2021. And so what you'll see here is that the highest number of program referrals by far went to SCRAM of California. This is electronic monitoring. I just wanna highlight here that this is one of those programs that is ordered by the court and was used um, particularly in the early days of the pandemic in order to expedite releases. Um, something else that I wanna highlight here is how um, reviewing this data really helps us understand, you know, how we can improve data tracking. Like, for example, aim higher here, you see that there's 2 program referrals. Um, but aim higher is interesting because it's actually a mechanism for connecting youth to programs. And so we would think that that number would be much higher, but it's clear that some youth are captured in the programs themselves and some are captured as aim higher. So we're right now thinking through how to better track you know the facilitation of program referrals so that we capture all of this within our data next just going over probation program referrals at the youth level so over this time year time period 281 unique youth were referred to 513 different programs um, amounting to just under two program referrals on average per youth on the right hand side, you see how this is distributed. So 56% um, of young people were referred to one program, 22% to two, 12% um, to three, and 10% to four to seven program referrals. Looking into um, youth referred to programs by JPD by gender, uh, boys accounted for 77% of the youth referred um, girls 23%, so it maps on to what we see in our active caseload snapshot that we've shown by month um, by race and ethnicity. Black youth accounted for just under 50%, Latinx youth just under a third, and then similar percentages from 6 to 8% for other white and AAPI youth. Um, in comparison to our active caseload snapshot that we provide each month in the data report, you see that black youth are slightly underrepresented while AAPI youth and other youth, I believe, are on the higher end of being um, slightly overrepresented. Here we see new probation program referrals by month from the beginning of 2020 through mid-year 2021. And so the number of new program referrals each month declined significantly in the first half of 2020 with the onset of shelter-in-place orders, but you see that it's remained pretty stable um, from June 2020 through June 2021. Then looking at the number of active program referrals that originated from a JPD probation program referral. Um, so this is the number of programs that are open and active at any point during a given month. You see that this has remained relatively stable during the 
15 year or 15 month, I'm sorry, study period ranging from anywhere between 110 to 140 active program referrals each month. I want to highlight here that the reason why the first quarter of 2020 is not displayed is because of the 2019 data being unreliable. And so by excluding that data, there would be an undercount in these first few months of 2020. And that also applies for this slide as well. So here you see youth active in programs by month from April 2020 through June 2021. Uh, you also see that the number of youth active in programs that they're referred to um, by JPD has remained pretty stable, but you've seen that it's increased um, in recent months. And this is alongside uh, while probation's active caseload has been decreasing. And so while the percentage of active caseload that is active in programs has ranged from 10 to 20%, it's been on the higher end of that range for the past few months. Here we look at program referrals by program type. And I just wanna reiterate uh, what I mentioned earlier is that program types really are like an imperfect way of binning programs because most programs provide an array of services, but they can only be categorized under one program type. Um, so for example, a detention alternative program can also provide case management and can pro provide employment services, but it will only be captured as a detention alternative in our data at the moment. And so here you see that just over 60% of probation program referrals were for detention alternatives. Um, this is followed by mental health therapy at 13%, um, anger management and community service at around 8 or 9%. And then you see that drug, alcohol, outpatient, case management, employment, and counseling um, all had lower percentages of program referrals. Again, that doesn't mean that our young people aren't getting employment services. It just means that they weren't referred to a program that is specific to just the employment services. On this slide, it's really a different way of visualizing the first slide that I showed, uh, where you look at probation pro program referrals by organization um, as a percentage. And here you see that one third of probation program referrals were to SCRAM. So again, those are the court ordered electronic monitoring referrals. This is followed by Seneca, then Huckleberry Youth. Um, and then you see less than 10% for all the rest of the organizations on this pie chart. And here we have length of program, length of time that young people participated in a program in days prior to termination by program type. So on average, young people spent just under three months in programs that they were referred to by JPD probation officers. Um, but this really varies. So anger management programs were the shortest with youth taking an average of about one month to complete or one month prior to terminating those programs, while mental health therapy programs were the longest, with youth taking an average of about seven months to terminate. And the reason why I say terminate rather than complete is because of the fact that this doesn't take into account whether it was a successful or an unsuccessful termination. And so here where you see minimum days being zero days, this can represent either a program that might be only one day long, or it could represent young people that never actually showed up to the program. And so their start date was their termination date. 
here we have the rate of successful termination by program type. And so the main takeaway here is just under three out of four young people successfully terminate their programs. And again, it's important to note that the criteria for successful program completion is determined by the program and not by JPD. But again, here you also see that it varies quite a bit. So drug and alcohol outpatient and mental health therapy programs have the highest successful termination rate of about 95%, while anger management programs have the lowest successful termination rate at 46%. And so that was a lot. So I just want to reiterate the main takeaways. Um, so while our program's data tracking is still evolving to ensure that we're capturing the full array of programs that young people are involved with, there are some notable takeaways that you know, we can gather from the data presented. So yes, the number of new program referrals facilitated by JPD each month has declined, but at the same time, you see that the percentage of youth active in programs each month has increased as our active caseload has declined. Most program referrals during this 18 month period have been detention to detention alternatives, followed by mental health therapy, anger management and community service. Um, young people spend about an average of 3 months in programs that they were referred to by JPD, though this varies um, by program type. And again, um, the successful termination rate is about 73%, though it's notably higher for young people in mental health therapy programs and drug alcohol outpatient programs. And so I want to close this off just by saying like what our next steps are, what we're working on as we continue to try and evolve our program's data tracking. So JPD is piloting a new application within its case management system, which is called Automon, um, that allows for the automation of program referrals and real-time information sharing between JPD and community-based organizations. Uh, this platform is called CE Programs or CE Providers. Um, for the providers. Um, some of the benefits of this platform include the fact that it allows for the automation of referrals and the enrollment management process, that it allows users to share important documents electronically and securely, and that it can also be used to track attendance, participation, and program termination. And so this speaks to a larger benefit of the fact that by housing all this information in one centralized location that is accessible to both JPD and providers, this increases efficiency, accountability, oversight, and quality assurance, right? All this information is stored in one place rather than in individual inboxes that could get lost over time. Um, and I want to highlight here that multiple um, community-based organizations have expressed interest in joining JPT in piloting this new system. And so I'm happy to take questions. There were some additional slides that we included in this report that break the data down in other ways, but in the interest of time, we will um, move on to taking questions. I see Commissioner Brodkin has a question. No, I have a comment. Oh, <laughs> sorry, a comment. First of all, I want to thank you for doing this. I feel like it is a miracle, not a miracle. It is fabulous that you have figured out a way to document this, to report it, to create a system. And I want to thank you and the chief 
and Maria McKee for you know sort of your commitment to trying to figure out what I have been raising since getting on the commission, the whole the whole issue of the relationship of CBOs to JPD. Having said that, I want to go to page six, and I think it's on page six. Yes, my favorite page in the whole thing. Um, and I understand the caveats, given the caveats, and I also understand the other side of this, which is uh, a lot of CBO referrals are actually initiated by the CBO that end up, but who cares about that? As far as I, I look at this page and say, this is a symptom of the problem. And I have an idea about the solution, but, you know, first of all, what, what the hell is Scram doing there? It's a for-profit you know, organization in San Diego that, uh, you know, is, is, is uh, you know, a compliance oriented thing. It's not a community organization. So, but that's beside the point. This is a picture of how probation sees community agencies. Almost all of these agencies, and there are so few of them actually, are sort of compliance oriented terms of probation. You get, you have to do this because you're on probation. It's not necessarily based on like, hey, your father's unemployed, the family is having a trauma, the blah, 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 you know, what do you need? This is compliance oriented stuff, not exclusively, et cetera. This chart, this whole report was circulated among some CBOs today who immediately formed the one referral club because there are like one, two, three, however many there are, get one referral who've been doing this work for years and years and years, are excellent at it. And this is like, oh my God, we're right. You know, they got one referral over this time, given all your caveats, et cetera. To me, this is, you have revealed the symptom of the problem. And as far as I'm concerned, the solution is not, oh my God, we gotta get over there and train all the POs to learn about all the CBOs around and figure out how to use them and figure out how to conceptualize them differently, like, who calls what they do anger management? I know it's a specific program that's been, you know, proven, but this this is not what I think of when I see CBO, uh, think of what CBOs can do. Not only that, if you look at a comparable list of the $10 million spended, uh, spent by DCYF of its justice agencies, there is, not a lot of overlap. <laughs> there are, I think there are 22 DCYF programs in this, in their portfolio. A lot of them show up nowhere <laughs> on this chart. And the six, the, the one referral club is all referral, you know, part of the DCYF um, portfolio of justice programs. So I think the solution here is to get to what a lot of people have been recommending since day one. We have to find a way to get the CBO and the probation department together on day one. 
so that there is a mechanism in place to see that we are using the range of CBOs that we have, the kind of CBOs, the kind of services that go far beyond what this list reflects, which is you need to do community service, go here. You need home detention, go here. You know, you have to have anger management, go here. We need a, a totally different approach to CBOs. And I think we get there by, and, and thank you for the data. Thank you for making me not feel crazy. I think we need to get there by a joint intake process where you have a CBO at your side or actually preferably uh, an intake process in the community before we get this probation centric compliance oriented approach to how to use the community. Um, and that, that way we'll have a totally different chart in a year. So I'm gonna spend a lot of my time in this field, on this commission, on all the committees that I'm on sort of fighting to get that kind of intake process to get a CBO in the picture from the very outset, preferably even before the probation department uh, gets involved in a case. So yeah, I do have lots of questions like, you know, uh, uh, you know, some of the caveats you gave, and I won't take any more time talking about this because mostly I wanted to say what I just said. And um, I'm very appreciative to have this information and I understand your caveats. So there's more to it than this chart reflects, but this is a pretty good picture of the kind of problem we've been talking about for a long time. I'm done. <laughs> and I'll, if I may just, if I may just respond, um, and no. say, uh, thank you for appreciating the work of Selena and Maria pulling this together, as well as Gabe and Derek and other folks who really brought this to life. And I will take us back to my opening comment that this is, um, this is looking at the past and where we've been. It's not the direction that we plan to endorse going forward. Um, and I'll talk later um, in my toward the end of my chief's report about how we intend to get to what really what you're talking about, Commissioner. Yeah, because the question now is uh, not do we need to move forward, but how and what structure and system do we put in place to change this dynamic? Any other commissioners have comments or questions? Yeah, I have a comment. Hey, so I'm looking at this chart, and um, I, I I get what you're saying, Chief Chief Miller is like, wow, I am I am not feeling so bad that I don't get referrals because I have never been in the process of doing this. But um, I'm looking at this chart, and I see the folks on here who give referrals, 90, 98% uh, of these people, I, I, these organizations, I know I've probably worked with. And, you know, I never signed up to do the referral process. Um, I have been the executive director for Elliot Hutch Collective Impact for the last few couple years now. 
and I was thinking about moving forward and trying to say, okay, now I have finally put a team together that can actually follow up and do some doing our probation stuff. I mean, not that we don't do it. I don't call myself that, you know, I do the work, but I don't really do the referral piece of it all. Um, but I'm like, yeah, I, wow. And then I had a question for some of this. I don't know what page it was on, but what, what did, uh, when I looked at, um, Success for alcohol for drugs and alcohol. What what did what does that mean? Success. Um, what is success? What I mean when you say drugs and alcohol, and it has ninety five point five percent success. What is that? Outpatient success. Can you explain that? I wish that I could, but we are not the ones that determine success. This is all just information that we receive from the programs and it gets entered into our database. Through so we program. just see that they're successful, but there's no additional context. Um, programs that, that, that the referrals went to? Yeah, so programs that fall under drug and alcohol outpatient program type. They're uh, the ones that determine how long young people stay in them and what is and is not successful. Wow. Do I I am I am flabbergasted. So they saying they have a 95.5% success rate with a drug and alcohol outpatient usage. Wow for young people. Um, and mental health therapy, 94.7%. This is one of the, you know, for me and having conversations in communities and talking to different organizations, this is our biggest. This is, these are, these are our issues. It's no success there at all. So, I mean. It's bullshit, James. Yeah, yeah it's, it's beyond that. It's, it's, it's straight out. That's, that is fibbing. You're fibbing on your reports, right? You're fibbing because there's no way every, and I call it cologne. So when young people come into my space or you come to where I'm at and then they, you know, they sit down and they start having conversation with me, right? I'll be first thing that comes to me is like, I always say, well, how do you come talk to me smelling? You got that cologne on, right? And when I say cologne, right? The cologne is the scent. And I call it cologne because they wear it so much now because they think it's legal. It's marijuana. So every time they come into my space, my my space smell like marijuana. So there's no way that people can tell me they're working with young people and they have fixed it where young people are not smoking, they're not using, and you know it just it's no way this this is just straight. You know this is like so I have like I said I have you know I I mean. This this is like I'm I'm like uh, Commissioner Brockett now. This is like just unbelievable when you look at this. This is just um, it is not true, period. It's not true at all. So and then I looked at the uh, um, who was getting the referrals and the people that's in the community got one referral. Like wow, one one and and that and that's I see why now. They come on here and they talk about like we don't get no referrals and this is definitely a probation uh, um, issue where if they're not getting referrals and they, you know, I'm looking at, you know, Young Women's Freedom Center, I know the work they do, so they got one referral. I mean, like, wow, that's, <laughs> I get it, you know, it's like, it's not true. So it's like how, like you said, Chief Miller, like, how do we move forward? 
and change this narrative and change these dynamics of, you know, if we're planning on winning in any way with young people, I mean, all that has to change. At the end of the day, all that all that must change if we're trying to have an impact in our communities and with our young people at all. So, you know. And, and I, uh, oh, sorry, yeah, for sure. I yeah. did want to know, actually, I think Young Women's Freedom Center is a great example of a space I wanted to note where, um, I just want to bring us back also to the fact that like services that kids are connecting with when they're in custody are not included in this. And so not in any way suggesting that there are a lot of numbers, but Young Women's Freedom Center has been a fantastic resource for us when there are detained young women and they may connect with them in custody or may already have that relationship with them when they're in custody and then be supporting them on the way out. But again, it's not going to be a referral the PO is making in the system. Because Young Women's Freedom Center already has that connection with the girl. So I just, I, you know, again, want to note that, like, yeah, all the things, all these comments are exactly on point. The data is limited, but it does speak for itself all at the same time. Um, and then I also want to note, and I don't know whether Gabe Calvillo is still on. I know he had a time limitation. Um, you know, that one of the things I'm excited about with him being here is that is his work at adult probation really working more with community organizations and making those referrals and particularly for the young adults in the units that he supervised. Um, and so I'm glad he is uh, here in his role working on this with us. I have, I have a question. I still have Commissioner Shorter. Okay. Um, Scram. So what is what is Scram's um, back to Commissioner Rockets? What the hell is Scram doing here? Um, on here, what what is Scram doing on there? What's their what what do they do? Are they they're they're the um, monitoring right? They are yeah. they. Electronic so, and ankle hole monitoring. Yeah, so they do the bracelets, the ankle monitors, the monitors for um, so they do GPS monitors. They do ankle electronic monitoring detention Correct. and for alcohol. In right? very small in very small numbers for alcohol, but correct. Okay, because going back to the ninety five percent success rate that. Commissioner Spingola was um, just pointing out. Can you go back to that? Yes. Um, I, I don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, is is that possibly skewed because of the use of of um, the scram monitoring the technology? In other words, you're going to have how many of the youth that are having drug and alcohol issues are are scrammed, um, <laughs> so yeah. to speak? Almost, Not almost, very many. Almost, almost nobody ever. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. very few youth. Like this is drug and alcohol outpatient. These were the additional slides that we appendix that didn't present for lack of time. Um, mm -hmm. You don't even see SCRAM on here because SCRAM alcoholic monitoring is considered a detention alternative. So again, that yeah. binning of programs by program type. Um, mm -hmm. So SCRAM isn't in this. 
Okay. I, thank you. I was I was just you know trying to figure yeah. out what Scram Scram's doing um, in the mix since we we're talking mostly. Well, I guess we we're just talking about all services, so that that it's not necessarily the nonprofit services, even if it's a for-profit service, it's still a service. But uh, wanting to make sure that that doesn't the use of their instruments doesn't skew even a small sample because they're able to um, monitor differently um, usage and can report out in, uh, I would imagine it a very uh, objective way. In other words, there, there's whatever the, the um, instrument says is what's going on. So no, you get what I'm saying? So yeah. it's like 30 days. Okay, you're on this bracelet. Yeah. Kid did not have get not have a beer or any alcohol or any kind of because we can prove it with our bracelet. Boom, termination. Okay. Right. Uh, we have they almost, would be in, yeah, almost yeah, no kid. Would, we actually use that for since I've been here very maybe two in a year so and a half. 180 80 something. Can you go back to that slide with the yeah. scram on it? Yeah, Where so that is mostly yeah. electronic so what monitoring. Using scram for then? What, what's their role? What, the there's 187 something. Yeah, that's electronic monitoring, and I would say maybe like mm -hmm. five or alcohol monitoring, but they would mm -hmm. all be encompassed in the detention alternative, not under drug and alcohol outpatient. So their success rate was more like 70%, not. Mm -hmm. 95% for detention alternatives. One last question. You may have to go back another slide. So of SCRAM, not here to pick on SCRAM, but I just want to be really clear. What is the percentage? I think you had a, a couple of slides before of youth under uh, SCRAM, some, you know, that are that um, are engaged with SCRAM in some way. SCRAM, there it is. SCRAM accounted for 36%. And uh, I also want to highlight that um, electronic monitoring is court ordered. Mm-hmm, right, I, yeah. Last but not least, do you, so tell me a little bit more about that information. I don't know what this means in the context of over a period of, you know, of how long. In other words, are, are is there a higher use of the home monitoring tools in the last five years, in the last two okay. years, in the last six months? I don't know what this means. Yeah, so I'm happy. I'm happy yeah. to jump in on that. So. So we saw a real increase in electronic monitoring and home detention, right? Both of those things um, mm -hmm. from, I would say, March through July of 2020. And it was directly in my, because of the pandemic, right? So what we saw happening when the pandemic hit um, was those numbers really going up actually to the point where we assigned a probation officer full time to be managing the electronic monitoring caseload because there were so many kids on electronic monitoring that somebody had to look at all the records for every day, right? And make sure that they mm -hmm. were doing what they're supposed to. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and then we saw that really come back down and we no longer have a probation officer in that role, right? Because it didn't justify it. 
but it was that real spike. And I think that, and we understand that all parties um, were really trying to minimize the number of kids in the hall in the spring mm -hmm. of 2020 going into that summer, like aggressively. And so the court, and, on, and in transparency, the court was ordering that on cases where we were asking them not to, where we were saying, no, don't release this young person. And the court was releasing them on electronic monitoring. So it was a very aggressive use that was responsive to the moment. And if you look at our data reports over the last year, you'll see that number tracking. I mean, it's not never a straight line, but coming down mm -hmm. from that big, big number. And so this time period that Selena's analysis is for happens to include this number, you know, this time period where we had this outsized use on it. Mm -hmm. But it's a real thing and it is used frequently and it's worth seeing here. I, I think, Commissioner, it's a very fair point that like, is it a program? Is it an intervention? Is it a detention alternative? But we wanted to be 100% transparent with all of you and show everything in our system that's reflected as a referral. Thank you. Hey, can I can I ask like what you know? And I just back to the. I mean, so because I'm so I'm so um, I'm so kind of plugged in on you know what would motivate an organization to give you that kind of data, right? When they know what it. Are you I mean, I mean, it's just it's just a thought. Like, what what motivates an organization or a program to give you that kind of data when it when they know it's not true? So, what, I, so, Commissioner? What kind of data do you mean? You mean completion uh, the success data? Success rate of what? That's that's why I'm just yeah. zoomed in on the success rates, right? Right. Overall, so, Selena, if you'll anger Selena, if you'll go to I mean, like, what would what would say that you know? I mean. I would, I know I'm just asking, you know, like, what, what do you all think that motivates an organization to say that we have a success rate of this, this high and we still, you know, we still have, you know, crimes and everything and, and all this going on with the same, you know, with the young people. But, um, sure. yeah, what would, what would motivate someone to say, I mean, you know, for me, even, you know, like what I do, I don't, I don't claim to do violent prevention or do or any of that, right? But do I prevent violence sometimes? All the time, right? But I don't claim to be a violent preventer. So when people say, James, do you do violent prevention? You know, like, no, I, I don't do it, but do I prevent things from happening sometimes? Yes, I do. Um, but what would my what would motivate someone to say that, you know, I don't do enough, you know, and I know that for me. You know, I always say that, you know, it's um, it's a whole lot of organizations out there that do this work, but this is why we, you know, have to have folks accountable for what they do, right? And, you know, when you, you know, like when you're giving organizations, DCYF, and they, they, they passing out this funding to these organizations and, and it just don't, you know, for them to come up with this kind of data and it's, it's just like it's wild to me because it's not you know is is it for the money do you not want to see the impact or uh, you know for me i you know i try to be as truthful as possible to my to my to my knowledge on what my programs do and all that 
but you know um i can never say i made it to a point where i'm you know i have a 98% you know um success rate in any in anything i i feel like we've i fall below some of the mandatory needs of our communities that you know i would love to have you know folks that come in or I'm always open to having conversations or other programs come in. If you can do it better, just come in and support whatever. But, you know, I can never, that stuff, it, it, it amazes me that, you know, that organizations would, you know, do, would do that and say that, you know, they, the success rate is, you know, is if I said that success rate was so high, then you all would be out of business a long time ago. We wouldn't have a facility. Right. So we were all doing our job. This is why for me, sometimes I don't go into like what happens up at juvenile because it was my job to keep them out of juvenile. They shouldn't you shouldn't have six, seven, eight or nine kids up in there. You know, I remember a time when I was growing up, it, you had one hundred and forty. So, you know, we're doing something right or is, you know, people leaving the city or whatever. You know, there's it, enough organizations out there that's connecting with young people um to get this to get some work done and it's making a difference you know because it shows by you know the the folks you have the young people you have incarcerated um but at the end of the day you know it's it's the other things that happen that you know makes it all kind of funky when it comes to um reporting out and you know like if you have this kind of success rate, then we're in trouble if you if, and we still have people going to jail. So this is you know, all them things end up to crimes being committed and everything else that goes on. And it's just, sure, like, so I'm, just I'm just so flabbergasted with, you know, just like, and it's kind of disappointing for me. I, I have hope. I just want to make it. Um, hello? Yes. Well, thank you for the presentation, Cecilia. You know, the statistic you provided is really, really alarming. But I have a question about the probation um, program referral. For example, YCD have about 4% oh, success rate, and I believe they refer 20 people. What specifically can you tell us? What kind of services did you provide to them? Sure. So let me try to answer both of your questions. And then, um, Selena, can you go back to the last chart that you just had up first? Because I want to respond right. to Commissioner Stingola sure. and then, of course, to Commissioner Moses. And I'm going to talk fast because I'm looking at the time and still have some more things to report. Sure. Um, but Commissioner Stingola, you know, just want to reiterate that it's up to the individual program to define when a young person has completed it. And I'm showing you the chart, for example, of drug and alcohol outpatient might be really a useful conversation to ask, for example, Horizons, which is the biggest provider of substance abuse treatment for that we refer to, um, what that means for them. But I also want to remind us that, you know, um, completion of drug treatment can mean a lot of things. It can mean harm reduction, but not sobriety, right? We know that that's a, a real, that is a success very often for somebody going through drug treatment. Um, this, and we have a harm reduction um, approach in San Francisco to a lot of drug treatment. We also know that people can complete programs and still struggle, and that's part of what kids do, right? They're, they have very nonlinear trajectories in their life. So it may be that programs are defining what success means in terms of 
um, a young person completing a certain number of sessions, but that's going to be different, right? Than what you're talking about that long term outcome and how they're living their life. And I, I think those are they're complicated things, um, but they are the ones defining it. And I think it would be helpful sometimes maybe for us to find out what what that definition means and for us to talk about it here. And then Commissioner Moses um, to your question about um, YCD, the primary thing that kids are referred to at YCD is the evening reporting center. It is a specialized program for kids involved in the justice system. Um, and I think that uh, that will, you'll see that as the primary um, way that referrals to YCD look and what they're for. Um, and I would, I know she's not feeling awesome tonight, but I know Valentina is, uh, Valentina Sedano, who actually runs that at YCD is in the, is one of the attendees tonight. I would welcome her to um, provide information to you. Um, maybe offline because I know she's not feeling awesome about what that looks like, but that is the, the primary uh, YCD referral you'll see from us. Okay. And I'm then the last thing I would, okay, right. okay. Yeah. And then I, I would also add, uh, I'm sorry. Um, the last thing I would add is I think Gabe Calvillo was trying to um, speak, um, but he wound up in the attendees and no longer as a participant. So I don't know if he needs to be unmuted just to weigh in on kind of where he sees taking this work at probation. I don't have the ability to unmute him. I can, I can unmute him. Can you unmute him? Thank you. There you go. Hey guys, thank hey. you so much. I don't know if you can throw my camera on. Um, but anyway, thank you for the opportunity. Just to test on something that uh, Chief Miller said previously. Um, I came from adult probation where I was there for almost 14 years. And we had a really good relationship with community-based organizations. And there was a professional alliance created there where we worked hand in hand. So that's what Chief Miller and myself are trying to bring here up um, at JPD. Forgive me if it's not, I'm on BART. I have to pick up my daughter at 8.30. Um, but th that's where we're trying to go. We're trying to, it's gonna be really interesting to see um, these same numbers a year from now, um, because, you know, I, I really believe that with the way that the change and the, and the, the the message that Chief Miller is bringing to the department is working alongside with the community-based organizations to, to to work in partnership with um, with the probation department to help children and families. So um, we're moving in that direction, and that's evidenced by our um, communication agreement that was created uh, and that we pushed forward uh, to the community-based organization just to start from a very simple. Uh, basic tenant of respectful communi uh, communication because I know that's been missing. Um, it's going to get pretty loud there in a minute. But, so anyway, I just wanted to touch on that. Hopefully, you guys were able to hear most of what I said. So thank you. Did any of the commissioners, other commissioners, have other comments or questions? Um, if, if you guys don't mind, I did have a couple questions. I I apologize if I missed this, but I, I'm wondering if if there's a reason why referrals seem to have decreased, and I don't remember what slide I saw that on. Or I apologize if it's already been addressed. 
Yeah, so I don't think we also have these questions about January 2020 um, internally, um, and I don't think it's a decrease as much as it is like an artificial uptick where like something happened in January 2020. Uh, we have some hypotheses of what it might have been. Either there was like this major push to enter program referrals that hadn't been entered in the past. Um, Chief Miller mentioned that in the holidays of 2019, there was a similar spike in the juvenile hall population. So this might be um, a similar spike in program referrals. But you see that it really like kind of levels back off in February through April, and then you see that drop that I think is reflective of the pandemic. But I wish we had a definitive answer for why January 2020 looks like that, but we unfortunately do not. We, I will add to Selena's point, we did hit 50 kids in the hall in the last week of December of 2019, which was a really high number for us in, in this, the last two years. Um, but also to her point, we do think it may be a data entry uh, result. That makes sense. Um, are there any thoughts as to why anger management has self-reported the lowest success rate? No, it's really <laughs> a, a question we would have to ask in terms of what their definition of success is. And that, so we're just not in a position to speak for them. That makes sense. Um, in I, I have two comments. I promise I'll make them quick. The first one was I was surprised by the low number of referrals to I think it was the category of mental health therapy, and I was just surprised by this, especially given in the last year, almost year and a half, the kind of increase in overall anxiety and isolation for adults and also for youth. And so I would assume that, and I I recognize this. Everyone that's mentioned that the program referrals could have multiple components. In other words, they could be referred to other programs and still have this component. Um, I I would hope for a higher number for mental health um, support and therapy. And then I'm hearing consensus of a concern amongst the commissioners, um, especially Commissioner Singola's, uh, Commissioner Brodkin's comments um, and. What I hear coming from this is a hope um, and sort of frustration about the self-identified success criteria and the lack of data that we have, or really the lack of oversight that we have on how these CBOs can self-report success or failure. Um, I was happy to, to see, I think there was a bullet point that said there's interest in CBOs and joining this new sort of case management program. And I'm wondering if as a part of that, and it may be too late, to build this in, but I'm wondering if there's anything we can do to sort of move towards um, unbiased uh, sort of better quality control over the metrics uh, and, and data and reporting of what is like a standardization of what is success. How do we measure that? And I realize the programs are very different, but I think even if we can't get a, a standardized set of yes, no success failure, can we get in some standardized data on participation rates? Is it daily? Is it weekly? Has it increased? Has it dropped off? Um, meeting attendance, hours even, or, or just some sort of other standardized data that isn't so dependent on self-reflection from these CBOs. 
Sure. I, and I would note, Commissioner, that, you know, for the funding that CBOs receive, whether it's from DPH or, D, or Department of Children, Youth and Families, they are articulating what their program is and what their success metrics are, right? So it may be that that information is in those systems and their contracts and their grant agreements um, with the city. Uh, and then, of course, they already are spending a lot of time reporting the attendance and contacts with their clients, with the kids they work with into, for example, DCYF's system, um, you know, one thing we can do in the future is show you that kind of cross reference, right? Of how many of our kids are also working and you've all seen this to some degree already with not through probation referrals, but with a lot of the nonprofits um, that are funded to work with our kids, right? And then I also think it's, um, I think the last thing I would say is, I do think that it's, it's a hard thing because sometimes it can be very it can be subjective what success looks like for a young person in a given interaction and in a given program and they look different for different kids depending on you know programs that meet kids where they are which is what we want sometimes may recognize success that looks different for a different young person so to some degree i really do want to um, look to our cbo partners as the experts on when they think a young person has completed some service with them and some kind of programming um, but I do think it's a really good question. Like, what does it mean? Who decides, you know, when it's a Department of Public Health funded program, it may mean very specific things based on certain evidence-based models. Like, there's a whole lot of information we could kind of dig into in the future. Um, I don't see this, the CE programs platform as a place for us to be kind of digging in right now to what does success mean? I do see it as a great next step for us in terms of making this transparent for all of us really streamline the way we do referrals um, it's not about it doesn't get us to then what does that new normal look like in the future of more collaborative planning at the front end but it's an important piece for us as we move along um, so i am excited about it even if it's not uh, the end point we all want to get to I'm also excited because it'll make it easier for Selena to come back and share this kind of information with all of you in the future. So we would like to make that easier for her as well. And then the last thing I would note is, you know, AIR, the main thing that AIR is contracted with the city to do is actually evaluate the outcomes of young people who go through DCYF funded organizations. So there is that evaluation happening also. I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, I did manage the housing program at the Asian Law Caucus. So I'm very familiar with all of those data points and reporting uh, monthly reports to funders with all of our data and intake um, evidence. <laughs> so I, I just wonder if there's a way then perhaps it sounds like there's a yearning from the commission to see some of that data. Um, but if AIR is working on that, is, is that going to be in the comprehensive report that we get later on? Now that's so that is the what that project is what they are actually contracted to do with the city <laughs> the thing they came and presented to all of you tonight was additional work we asked them to take on because they had the ability to do so in this moment because they couldn't do some of that other work during COVID. Um, that's why we were able to do this with no additional funding for them and they found a time to do this this piece that they came here tonight for but their main contract is to do this deep evaluation of our justice service programs, those grants that DCYF is holding. And I that I would have to um, punt to Maria on the timeline for that because I just can't remember when they'll have that completed. 
I also can't remember, but they did present, they've been doing um, like regular, I think biannual reports, and they believe that they just presented recently to the program subcommittee. Yeah, I was going to say that they came to the last program committee and presented on their findings so far. I think this is a real problem, but the answer is not that that the probation department develop its own um, evaluation system, but figure out how to communicate with the agencies that are doing an evaluation. So if it's the Department of Public Health that funds all this drug prevention stuff, is also saying it's 95% effective. We got a problem, but the problem is with the Department of Public Health and the way they evaluate their programs, I think. I actually uh, think we fund, I, I actually think we fund Horizons directly for that one, but. Oh, you do? For I believe we pay for the Horizons. Program. I'm not sure. So, I, I, I know it's on the DPH list, but, you know, anyway, but. The issues with the funder is my point who's doing the evaluation. What shocks me about this is like, does the probation officer say, what do you mean? 95% effective is James the 1st person to ask that question. Are you just sort of check the box and say, yeah, great. 95% effective. Which is, of course is bullshit. We all, we all know that. So, um, anyway, that's my point. <laughs> but can I, I just want to, um, of course it would be certainly, um, good to have more information in terms of what, how people are, are, um, uh, determining what's successful and what the criteria are, et cetera. Um, in the, in the various programs towards certain ends, but isn't the brass tacks of what it is that for the, for probation, um, is ultimately that whatever, uh, whichever of these programs. Um, a youth is exposed to and has opportunity to be engaged with. Our goal is that of recidivism. <laughs> so our, our job is to make sure that, that you have um, the supports and the services um, in the community that ultimately our measurement is that of recidivism. Are you recidiv recidivating or not? And what are we doing to lessen the probability or likelihood that a young person would come into further contact with um, law enforcement, come into contact with um, majority of, of the, the of, of juvenile um, probation um, or any of the other justice system um, entry? Um, so. I don't, I, I think while it would be great and, and certainly I wouldn't turn it away to, to, to hear more and to learn more down the road um, about the various programs. Um, and in fact, I think that I had <laughs> had, um, uh, you know, asked last time, I mean, what kind of an overview do we have of the array of programs and services that are uh, available or they're interacting with, with probation or should be. And now we've got, I think, 
today from this presentation a little more information, but um, to me, it isn't isn't that really what we're. In other words, I, I want us to clearly. I support learning learning more, but I, I guess I'm just sort of um, trying to define what's our lane. <laughs> See, our lane is to make sure that um, we're doing what is reasonable, um, what is necessary, and certainly within our purview to engage services for the purpose of trying to, again, safeguard young people uh, and support their, you know, development in the, in the community. But ultimately, <laughs> it is about whether or not you're going to continue to have contacts with, with um, law enforcement and um, probation. It's recidivism. Am, am I being too crass or too... <laughs> Too, too I angry at 8:27 p.m. <laughs> um, with respect, I think I, I think it's a really complicated question, Commissioner, because I think recidivism is a very normal part of being a young person. I mm -hmm. think that recidivism looks a million different ways. Um, I think that some kids are much more likely to come to the attention of law enforcement than other kids for many many reasons of history and bias and inequity, and I think that. I would like to believe we have an obligation to look at the entirety of a young person's life and partner with folks to make sure that we're helping them um, leave their contact with all of us better than they came. So I think it's I think we have a lot of outcomes we need to look at. Recidivism is obviously a huge piece of it, but even that can mean so many things. And so exactly. yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's a, I think it's an important conversation for right. us to but have. Our scope to evaluate a drug or alcohol program. I think that is beyond the scope of what serving. we're here right. to do, and mm -hmm. definitely beyond the scope um, tonight. That's what I yeah. With that, and I've indicated to um, the vice president, I actually have to exit. Thank you for your time with us, Commissioner Shorter. Thank you. Good to see you all. Um, it, Rosh Hashanah is ending soon, so happy Rosh Hashanah to those who uh, are celebrating. Um, and it ends this evening, so good to see you all. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Should we, are there more questions on this or should we move forward to the last part of my report? Yes, moving forward would be great because I think we can go into this. I, this would definitely be <laughs> a deep dive. And I think, you know, with scuba gear. So. We can move forward on my. Two, may I move? Can I may I move forward with my the last part of my slides? I was going and, to hesitate uh, and ask if there were further comments, but I think that sounds wiser to move on. <laughs> Selena, can you give me back the uh, little box thing? Okay, I have it. All right, I 
We'll talk so fast. So this is the rest of my report. Can you see this screen, my screen? Yes. Okay. All right, so going through the rest of my report for all of you, I wanna start with some staffing changes. So every month we give kind of a workforce update. I wanted to note that we had, um, since we've last been together, so since um, our last, our July meeting actually, we had one new person join our department in a temporary position, so a temporary hall counselor. We wanna make sure that we can be staffing our hall, but we also know that it's not the time to be doing those permanent positions. So we did bring somebody in on a temporary basis. We also promoted three staff, um, one who had been in an acting, well, two who had been in essentially acting already in their roles, and then um, a new probation supervisor. And I wanna give a huge shout out to Martha Martinez, who was promoted into that open supervising PO role. She's now one of the two PO supervisors overseeing our vertical units. Um, and I'm uh, really excited that she is uh, in that role. And I know we also heard from a number of folks in the community how happy they were to see her have that opportunity. I also wanted to share that we had five separations from the department during this time period. Um, a senior account clerk, a counselor from the hall, a senior administrative analyst, and two probation officers, Yvonne Moore and Michael Johnson, both of whom were with the department for many, many years um, and are uh, retiring. So I wanted to note that. Um, I also wanted to speak briefly about reorganization in the department. So I already mentioned earlier tonight that we no longer have a probation officer at CARC. Mike Johnson had been the probation officer at CARC in the last few months before he retired. So at this point, we've been doing the work without having a PO on site there. Um, want to acknowledge that as a change in the way we do business. I also wanted to note that we merged two of our units together um, our placement and reentry units are now combined. Um, I think Commissioner used to also uh, month after month how the placement unit was getting so small in caseload, reentry was getting a lot bigger. Made sense to both to combine those. I have heard it referred to as the play crew unit at various points recently, but I did want to acknowledge they have been the POs in those units have been combined. We have pulled out of that mix. Um, our AB12 social workers. So as you know, they work with kids who are no longer on probation. They are non-minor dependents who we continue to support. Um, so we have a great team of social workers working with those young people, those young adults. And we actually have Kwanzaa Morton in an acting supervisor role, um, supervising our social workers. And I think Kwanzaa is an amazing fit and mentor and leader for them in that work. He was a huge part of the creation of the J Crew model. Um, and I'm very, very happy to have him in that role. We're trying this out as kind of a specialized way of supporting them, especially as um, Judge Chan is really working hard to really kind of think through what that AB 12 kind of court caseload should look like and the kinds of services and supports that we all wanna be providing to them. Um, and then just going into um, return to work and telecommute policy. So, um, uh, this week, yesterday, was the first day that we fully returned at juvenile probation back to on-site work, moving away from having um, smaller on-site uh, numbers of folks in the front building and, and a lot of people telecommuting, so we're back, we're together. Um, we are rolling out some ongoing minimal telecommuting for some of our staff, kind of on a pilot basis to see if it works. It's not something probation's really done in the past, but of course, got very used to it during the pandemic. 
Um, so there'll be limited, some limited telecommuting for the positions that can accommodate it. That's not all of our positions. Um, but by and large, we are back in this building. So nice to see people. I also want to talk about um, the vaccine mandates that are out there and how they affect us. So um, there were two health orders that came down from the San Francisco health officer this summer on the July 23rd and again on August 2nd. And those orders basically result in all of our staff um, having to be vaccinated to do this work on two different timelines. So under the health orders, anyone who works in the hall full time or are regularly in the hall need to be fully vaccinated by next week, by September 15th to perform that work. So that includes our counselors, but it also includes our uh, probation court officers and our on-duty probation officers since they routinely are going back into the hall our buildings and grounds crew, who of course is in the hall regularly, positions like that. And then anybody who's not regularly in the hall, but has any contact or has, or has to go back occasionally into the hall is required by the city health officer to be fully vaccinated by uh, October 13th. We made the judgment here in our department that that means everybody else. So in effect, the entire department is under that timeline to be fully vaxxed by the 13th of October. Of course, now that the FDA has approved one of the vaccines, all city employees are now under um, the order to become fully vaccinated anyway. But we have these earlier dates because of the nature of our work. Um, as part of making sure that our staff feels comfortable thinking about getting vaccinated, folks who, who are hesitant, we had the incredible fortune to have Dr. Ayanna Bennett, um, who works at DPH. She leads their Black Health Project there. She does a lot of work around inequity and health disparities in the Black community. An amazing doctor who I've had the privilege to know for a number of years. She came and did a couple sessions for both our staff and adult probation to talk about the health effects of the vaccine, the benefits of it, and answer folks' questions. So I want to just acknowledge that and thank her. It was very important to some of our staff that they could hear directly from a medical professional of color about the vaccine. So we were really grateful that she made that possible for us. As part of uh, this is kind of the new normal for us, not only do we have the vaccine order, but we have another health order that the city health officer um, issued on August 22nd, requiring anybody going into juvenile hall to have a negative COVID test. People who work there, regardless of vaccine status, even if you're vaccinated, they have to be tested weekly to work back there and then anybody going in for an occasional reason will have to have a negative test result on the way in. Um, this is similar to the order that's been in existence for some time at our jail. So this has now hit juvenile hall as well. We are in the process of becoming a, um, a self-certifying COVID testing site here. I wanna thank Bobby Upal who did this as fast as humanly possible, working with the state and the Department of Public Health to get that certification process for us. We've been approved now to be a self-certifying site to go through a few more processes before we can actually start administering the tests here. But that will enable anybody coming to our front door who needs access into the hall, whether it is you know, families, whether it is service providers, attorneys, um, anybody who needs access back there, obviously our staff who may need to go back and visit a young person, they will able to be able to have a rapid test on site here at probation or at the hall. Um, and we will let folks know as soon as that is activated. Until that is up and running, we still have very limited access to the hall. Um, and our staff, until that's activated, are um, 
we're very grateful that Laguna Honda has made it possible for our staff to be going down and having weekly tests, our hall counselors and the other affected folks. Um, and a huge shout out to uh, Department of Public Health and Carol Taniguchi, who really moved mountains to make all of that possible for us. Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about with workforce is uh, recognition by the, the city for disaster service workers. So the city is doing a formal recognition of all staff across the city who took disaster service assignments um, during this period and people are getting this coin who did that. Um, and I just want to share that there are 10 folks working here who took those assignments over the last year. One was Gabe when he was still at adult probation. And then the other folks here were um, Andrew Gatto, Carla Limas, Morgan Liu, Philip Lowe, Adel Mahmoud, John No, Ray Cole, Chris Griffin, and Rudy Lucero. So they had a, everyone from probation officers to cooks, food service workers, buildings and grounds folks um, really uh, took on some of those roles and we really appreciate it. Um, in some cases, it led to employment opportunities in other departments, uh, particularly for our cooks and food service workers. And that was really, really uh, great and timely. But I want to thank them and they will be getting uh, the coins. Um, and then I wanted to move us along to talk about race equity for a minute, um, both internal and external. We've been talked about this for a little while. So as folks remember, a year ago, we were working on what the city mandated every department to turn in, which was called our phase one internal race equity work plan. You all saw it in its uh, like 37 page glory. Um, and that was a work plan focused on increasing racial equity within the, our staff, kind of internal looking our workforce. Um, so we turned that in last December and we've been working on implementing some of that. It's looked a bunch of different ways. Um, I want to share some of what we've done in this year. So we've made sure as we're doing our budgeting, capital planning, anything like that, our annual report that we're addressing racial equity. We've actually um, incorporated explicit goals about being a more racially equitable organization, both internally and with the people that we serve. They are part of our hiring process. They're on our job announcements. We're making sure we're having diverse hiring panels, including representation from community for some of our positions. Um, and then just really going through kind of fairness and, and being aware of bias and hiring processes. Our staff also had the opportunity this year and the mandate uh, to go through some really important trainings in bias, diversity and racial trauma across divisions. Um, we actually had, I think we've spoken about this before, but Dr. Kimberly Papillon do amazing training for all of us in the neuroscience of bias last spring so that we could all be hearing that together. Um, and then we created a survey about how our staff thinks we do in terms of race equity here. And uh, we'll be doing that annually. And then finally, we've had a group of people in the department doing some really great work to celebrate all of the different kinds of racial, ethnic, and cultural um, uh, events that we hold dear here at probation. So I wanted to thank them for their work. In terms of externally, how do we think about race equity? with the way we work with our young people and their families and community, that really folds into what I want to talk about now, which is how do we do all the kinds of work we've been talking about tonight? How do we work with the recommendations coming out to some degree from the closed juvenile hall work process? How do we take the recommendations that came from the Mayor's Blue Ribbon panel around maximizing diversion, having collaborative case planning, really changing what supervision looks like? And how do we do the stuff that came up tonight? 
how do we get to really having a system looking at that front end collaborativeness collaboration um, really between probation and community and families from the beginning how do we get from point a to point b we just you know how do we operationalize that so i've uh, presented a couple times to the commission about the contract we entered into with third sector which is um, serving as that collaborative kind of consulting strategic process partner for us in this work. Um, and I just want to give up, speak to that a little bit more tonight. So third sector is an organization that we were able to um, enter into a contract with because they had gone through a pre qualifying process with the city to be on the list of approved consultants for that purpose. We were given the opportunity. Um, to carry over some unspent funds, not from last fiscal year, but from the year before. The city enabled departments to carry some funding over with the explicit purpose of using it to address race equity work. And of course, what we're doing here is race equity work. We talk all the time about the incredible inequities of the young people who cross into our system and uh, Supervisor Moses brings that up as he should in every meeting. We were able to um, get permission from the city to keep that money to contract with third sector to basically support all of us to now take the step of doing this planning and implementation work together. Um, and, uh, and this process has started. So over the summer, um, third sector started doing focus groups and listening to JPD staff about their ideas and thoughts about how to start implementing this work. They're now in the process of also hearing from a number of our CBO partners. I wanna thank the folks from the Juvenile Justice Providers Association and CBOs who they've also directly hooked up with to hear from them about what their thoughts, concerns, and recommendations for how we move into this work. Um, and we're also working on how they'll hear directly from young people as part of this process. The next step is that um, we would like to offer to have them come and present to all of you in October about the work and the plan. But the basic idea is that from October to December, we would be coming together in these collaborative work groups to actually operationalize these goals, develop what the plans will be in the next few months, and then actually start launching this new way of doing this work together um, in the new year. So we are very grateful to have them here for the work. Um, their expertise, their sector's expertise really lies in helping with process, helping government agencies and community work together to come up with new ways of doing business. They've had great experience doing this work um, in Multnomah County, which is really a model for juvenile justice or probation reform. They've done this work with um, in Boston with an organization called ROCA and how it works with probation there. ROCA is a great nonprofit in Boston. And they've also done some really good work um, in Alameda County with the justice system around young adults. Um, so we're excited to have them here doing this. They're not content experts, right? So what they bring to us is the facilitation, um, kind of inclusion, the momentum for all of us, the structure that we all need, because we all have a million jobs and really staffing the process. Um, and I think it would be really great if the commission was up for it for you to hear from them in at the October meeting, I will humbly suggest. And then the last thing I want to just touch on is the other parts of our kind of transformation work. Some of this is baby steps and then some of it is, you know, longstanding steps. So one thing I wanted to note is that we completed this process with the JJPA of coming up with communication agreements for how we're gonna be working together um, in some different kinds of ways, right? So like 
most basic agreements that make sense to all of us. Instead of probation kind of ordering CBOs to show up a certain way in the work, all of us together deciding how that's going to look. And I want to thank the POs and also the folks from community who sat in a number of meetings together to hammer those out. Um, we've now turned that into um, a very readily accessible document. It'll be on our website by Friday. I think I can maybe show you guys it in this conversation if I can figure out how. Um, uh, Don Stuckel from Sunset Youth and the JJPA and I went together to the court partners to present it to the bench and the attorneys um, and others uh, earlier this summer. We're now sharing it out with all of our staff and I know that's also happening on the JJPA side. So when I acknowledge that, it's an important first step for us for whatever models we have in the future. I also want to give a big shout out to Bobby Upal for pulling together a really great summary of all the programs that are happening in Juvenile Hall. 19 different programs provided by a number of our community partners, and then I think three programs provided by DPH in the hall. So we have a great summary document that's also going on our website. He's also shared it out with a number of stakeholders in the last few weeks. And I want to thank all of the um, community community organizations actually doing the work. And I'm glad we got to reflect that in this document and show the good work you're all doing. And then the other thing I want to note, and this came up in Selena's presentation, is that historically we haven't actually tracked the completion of programming for kids when they're in detention. And I want a huge shout out to Bobby and Maria and Selena and everyone who have figured out how to now get that started in our case management system so that POs can now see the information that counselors can enter about whether kids are um, completing and engaging with programs in the hall so we can have more continuity um, in case planning and information sharing. In terms of DJJ closure, um, you know our local subcommittee charged with figuring that out continues to meet. We have a lot of work to do in a short period of time figuring out what San Francisco's local response will be. Um, now that we cannot send kids to DJJ, even though we did that very rarely in the past. That group meets every other Tuesday from 4 to 6. The next meeting is actually next Tuesday um, from 4 to 6. And let us know if you ever want information about it. It's also all on our website under the JJCC tab, all the meeting information, all the documents we're sharing, um, and all the recordings of those meetings. In terms of out of home placement, I'm really excited just to give a super quick update on our new uh, contract that the city's entering into with alternative family services. So, as you all know, we completed um, a formal solicitation process to identify a foster family agency that would take this work on. This will enable us to create in this first year up, establish up to seven beds. Um, with what are called RFAs, resource families, um, for our kids. And I think this is a really important step for a number of reasons. As you saw in the data report, we continue to now more heavily look to RFAs than group homes as resources for our kids. These will be RFAs specifically for our kids, for San Francisco juvenile probation kids, so that we know we have beds and we have families that want to work with our kids. Um, and that we can all work with together. So this is an exciting new venture. Um, in August, DCY, we will finish the, the competitive bidding process and DCYF formally awarded this grant to Alternative Family Services. We've started planning meetings with probation, DCYF, and Alternative Family Services to work on the scope of work and execute the contract. Um, 
and really make sure, for example, that AFS will be working with existing providers who may already be working with our young people, leveraging that partnership, things like that, making sure this is kind of uniquely tailored to uh, San Francisco and our juvenile system. Um, like I said, they're looking at establishing up to seven beds in year one. And actually, even though it's not in one of the new beds, um, for the first time this week, AFS is taking uh, one of our current young people into one of their existing RFAs. So we're really excited about that. And they do a really great job as an organization supporting the families that will that take on that RFA role, giving them respite care, a lot of support and training, um, and really just uh, being, you know, being the, the support and the force behind that when it can be a very difficult job for a family to take on. So we're very excited to be launching that and we will continue to talk about in the future. And then I guess I will end by saying on the closed juvenile hall working group um, that I don't exactly have an update um, because I feel like we've already talked about it a lot tonight, other than my update will be um, that before I kick it over to Commissioner Brodkin to see if she has anything she'd like to add, that in the most basic terms, in terms of where that process is, right now the consultants to that process are um, drafting the report that will go to the Board of Supervisors. They have drafted so far an executive summary that is now being reviewed by members of the work group. So we saw it for the first time, I think last night, it's gone out to the public today. I see Commissioner Brodkin waving her hands because she didn't get it last night. Um, but it's going out to everyone now, and then they'll be having meetings to get feedback on that executive report. Although I do think it may have already gone to some members of the Board of Supervisors, so I'm not exactly sure how the process is working. Uh, and then the other thing I'll note is that in our meeting today, um, James Bell, one of the consultants, noted that the Formal final report will go to the Board of Supervisors by November 15th. So that is the, um, the date that they've now shared with all of us. Uh, Commissioner Brodkin, anything you want to add about closed juvenile hall? No, I just want to make sure that we all get a chance to see the full report before it gets put in cement and sent to the Board of Supervisors. And I still am not clear that that's going to happen, but um, and I think everybody on the commission should now get this executive summary and hopefully the full report. Sure, we can send it. I can share it with Pauline so that everybody receives it. Great idea. Thank you. Um, and that is my report. So I am happy to take any questions that folks have. Lightning round. Do any of the commissioners have comments or questions? Hearing none, should we move to item 5B, the Programs Committee meeting update by Commissioner Brodkin? Um, I would like to defer this to our upcoming meeting, but because it's on the agenda, I think legally we have to give anybody who wants to talk about that an opportunity. Um, and just to say that uh, the last meeting was about Log Cabin Ranch. There's a lot to report about that. It also included the report on the all the DCYF referrals, and I can report on that. And I'd like the next meeting, um, if my two fellow meetingers, uh, 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 committee members, 
um, agree to sort of to review the things we've talked about in the committee and see what progress has been made. And, um, you know, since that's an important function of the committee is not just to come up with ideas and hear testimony, but to follow up on the uh, the ideas, particularly the CBO relationships, the housing for transitional age youth and. Um, uh, I, I've had 2 requests to present to the committee. Um, 1 from CJCJ on an evaluation they've had done. Uh, and another from the youth law center on some work they are doing. Um, I, I want to know if people on the commission on the committee have ideas, have things they want to see on the committee and since it's related to the committee, I, 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 it's not related to the committee. I, <laughs> um, I have a few things that I want to say about the deep dive report, but I will hold off on that and hopefully find a way to get all that said at a later time. You let us know when the next meeting is going to be, Commissioner. Yeah, you know, I keep changing it, but it's not my I fault, Tony. Um, I be, <laughs> I'm trying to accommodate our chief, who has who ended up with a conflicting meeting. The judge, Judge Chan, who said he wants to come. Um, so the next meeting is. Uh, so we decided on the third Tuesday at three o'clock, and. Uh, Pauline checked with you and with James and you got and and the chief and you all said it was okay. I'm not thrilled, but you know, hey. So that means the next meeting is when is it, Katie? Uh, I'm looking. Twenty-first. Isn't it twenty? Yeah. I think it's the. It's the 21st of September at three o'clock. Yes. The first of September. Allegedly, you have been asked. <laughs> I'm not supposed to talk to you, you know, except in the commission meetings. I'm, it's so frustrating for me, actually. I, I Is Janice still here? I, I I think that, you know, I'm just going to start emailing you and James, even though we're not supposed to do that. But you can, you can discuss scheduling and things like that. You can't. You can't discuss like commission business, um, but you can okay. check with commissioners about, you know, agenda, what to put on the agenda, things like that. But you just can't have a substantive discussion about the, the oh, you know, the group's work, the body's okay. work. Yeah, got, uh, uh, okay. I th thank you for the clarification. I didn't know you were still there. I thought it was a joke. <laughs> oh, uh, now I'm here. <laughs> Laura is watching you. Celia Tony is watching you. So I will send you, start sending you both more emails about what do you want to see on the agenda? Does this time working? Etc. Because et I have felt constrained about doing that and doing it through Pauline, which has been sort of awkward. So, thank you. 
I think with that, we need to take public comment on item five, which includes item 5A, the chief's reports, and item 5B, the program committee meeting update. Are there any public comments? I'll remind folks to press star three to be added to the telephonic queue, to raise your hand on WebEx or to email. We have two people with their hands raised. I'll uh, unmute the first one. Good evening. Um, this is Kriya Gomez. Uh, can you all hear me? Yeah. Oh, I'm Kriya Gomez. I'm with the Young Women's Freedom Center, who is, yes, part of the one referral club. Uh, I also sit on the closed juvenile hall work group and hope that this presentation will be forwarded to the work group, um, in particular, the, the deep dive, um, and if possible, presented to us. Um, I first want to thank, um, you know, the, the probation chief and, uh, you know, JPD uh, for doing this. I, I'm looking forward to the implementation of this new case management system that was discussed. Um, and the table that it creates for better communication, collaboration, and an effective referral process that truly meets the needs of the young people we all are serving. I'm looking forward to the creation of a criteria of effective programs in a rubric or a tier of success that is rooted in adolescent development. Um, and I'm wondering what the evaluation process of this new system will be. Um, I'm, I'm actually giving this process the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, regarding the 2019 data being unreliable, I remember seeing data um, possibly from 2018 and 2017 uh, regarding the juvenile deten uh, probation detention referrals in, the, in, in those previous years. And it was very similar. Um, most authentic community run and initiated programs received one referral then too. Um, I'm wondering, like a lot of you, how SCRAM qualifies as a CBO and, and what type of advocacy and recommendations to judges of what programs you should be referred to is happening from um, social workers and probation officers. I'm really interested in hearing more about the mental health therapy and the drug alcohol treatment programs with such high success rates <laughs> and even having them come present on their success. Um, you know, the utilization of the electronic monitoring is evidence that while the purpose of juvenile justice, right, while the purpose of the system is supposed to be about rehabilitation, this is evidence that there is still a culture, conscious or unconscious, of punishment. The data was in the middle of COVID. Um, and imagine the type of support youth would have got connected to and their families would have got connected to if they were referred to true community-based programs versus SCRAM. Um, I'm also wondering what we would learn if we overlap the racial demographics with the referrals um, and who was referred most to which program. Anyway, I, I just want to thank you for the collection of this data and I'm looking forward to the review of the detention risk instrument next month and the conversation on girls in November. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, have... Good evening, commissioners. That was a long meeting. I'm so glad that we're at the public comment section. Um, my name is Denise Coleman, and I'm from Huckleberry Youth Program. <laughs> and I wanted to make some comments about um, the referral section of your report, Chief. 
I am, I think the new referral system is gonna be great. I think I'm looking really forward to participating in that. And I think it's gonna be great for tracking, but I'm wondering how that's going to help facilitate which program is gonna be the right fit uh, for our young people. Um, also in the uh, presentation um, that was made, um, on one of the slides, we spoke to more than, or the various kinds of referrals um, that each young person got. Some of them got two, some of them got more than two. And I was wondering, uh, did they get more than one referral because they were unsuccessful in that referral? Or was it because they had more than one need and they were, refer were referred to three or four different programs for uh, whatever their need is? Um, I am also looking forward to the review of the risk assessment instrument. I think that is really going to be um, incredibly important. And um, thank you all so much for that uh, incredible report that was done. I could tell there was a lot of work um, and energy put into that. And I very much appreciate it. And I would love to see the referral process, the REI, um, and even the communications all rooted in restorative justice principles, you know, where we are looking at dignity and compassion and equity, um, not only for our young people, uh, but for the providers um, and our city departments as well. Thank you, good night. Thank you. Is there any more public comment? Anyone's hands that raised? Uh, that brings us to item number six, future agenda items and uh, announcements. I'll put that under future agenda because um, I think we ought to look at the agenda and look at issues where there's we know there's going to be a lot of public testimony and put it early on the agenda because I know a lot of people who wanted to talk got got you know just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> And I feel as guilty as anyone about that, but I think if we organize the agenda in the future with an eye toward where people are likely to want to testify, that would make our meetings much more accessible. And more interesting for us. Any other agenda items, future agenda items? May I just um, raise the question about whether we could plan to have third sector come and give, at least give you an um, overview of the process that we're going to be launching in October? I just put it out. It's obviously the decision of the commissioners, but I do want to offer it up here so that we know whether to tell them. Sorry for skipping over that, Chief Miller. Um, what's the easiest way to do this? Should we go through the commissioners one That's by fine. one? I, I don't think you. I don't think you need a motion. I think you just need one commissioner to say they want it on the agenda. <laughs> I want it a lot. There you go. Win-win. Um, any other future agenda items? And then announcements. Um, 
Commissioner Broadkin will just yeah, this is weird um, and I would like to defer these issues and because one they aren't really announcements I had asked to have them put on the agenda and I don't know what happened I do think we ought to have a retreat um, of the Commission I prefer a time when we can finally get together face to face we don't have time to talk about it now I think it should be on a full agenda item for the next time. And then I also wanted to talk about, you know, goals for the department <laughs> and how we evaluate whether we're reaching those goals. Do we know what they are? Or do we have a say in what they are? And how do we evaluate and on what basis do we look at that issue? Um, I think it's an important conversation for the whole commission. Um, I was asked to put it on the agenda of the program committee, and I wondered what the chief thinks of that. Apparently, it was your idea. Um, so, to me, it is a, a potential agenda item for the whole commission. Um, and unless anybody objects, I'd like to see both those items put on the full agenda. Um, it's whoever's job it is to organize our agenda to make sure we don't have too many things on one agenda. Um, I don't think either of them are a crisis, but I think they're both really important. So, so what are you saying specifically to build the agenda? Pardon? I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Oh, uh, well, I can appreciate that since I wasn't that clear. I want to put these two items on future on a future agenda. Should we have a retreat? Well, if, if so, what should we talk about? When should it be? Should we have a formal way of um, evaluating the goals of the department, say on an annual basis? You know, sort of uh, having a say in what they are formally and then a process for evaluating whether we reach those goals i just want to discuss whether that's a good idea not <laughs> um and i would like to put those two items on the agenda i don't I think i have any problem with it we can say yes or no to the retreat yeah well let's let's discuss it further that's the point let's discuss it and if I can offer up, um, Commissioner, I do think that one of the things we'll be getting out of that third sector work in the next few months with community partners is identifying some performance measures. So I'm wondering whether it's a whether you might want to do it toward like toward December when we've had some time to collectively chew on that with our CBO partners. Um, okay, uh, or, or just, or just uh, not October. <laughs> So if you're saying by the end of December, you're, that process will have articulated a specific goals and performance measures for the department? Because I think we'll a, be trying. Yeah, I think we'll okay. be working on it. I don't know yeah. if it'll be done, but I think it's good. I'm only only because I think October's meeting is already going to be. Um, yeah, then it makes sense. You know, I I, I want to get it on the agenda at a time when we we can have the most constructive conversation about it. Great. Mm -hmm. I think I'm hearing consensus in favor of having a um, a retreat, and I wonder if discussing 
annual goals and measurements for those goals would make more sense at a retreat instead of at another commission meeting. Um, it seems like that's a great topic to talk about during a retreat. Um, I also hear that it makes sense to have the retreat maybe later on in December or January. Um, that all seems fine. So I would propose having, well, I actually don't know if, if we're all in agreement in having a, a retreat, um, do we need to have an agenda item to discuss having a retreat or should we just agree to have a retreat and um, uh, I, I think this particular thing is not the agenda. I don't think we should be talking about it right now. Let's just calendar it for next commission meeting. Okay, I so think that's a good idea. Okay, I think so, you should uh, put the retreat on the on the agenda and talk about what it'll look like and what the topics will be. Thank you, Sirieto. Yeah. Okay. Should that um, I can leave this up to Ms. Silver Ray, but perhaps that should be um, a discussion item, perhaps an action item. Yeah, but I. Yeah, I would recommend discussion and possible action. You, your commission had a retreat before. Just FYI, it's it needs to be a. It, well, we can talk about the kind yeah, of the legal requirements. Yes or no? That's right. When it when you get closer in time. Great. Thank you, Deputy City Attorney. Well, it's 10 p.m. in Mexico. After 10. I think uh, there are no further. Well, do we have to have a public comment on our future agenda items oh, and announcements? And actually, I, I forgot there was one more announcement, which is that Commissioner Maldonado has stepped down from the commission, and we would like to thank her all for her work and time with us and her service with us, and to congratulate her on her next adventure. Which is. Uh, I think it's um, family. Oh, oh she's that right. Mm -hmm. I believe she is increasing the number of people in her household. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any hands? Any public comment for item six, future agenda items and announcements? Press star three or hold your peace until next month's meeting. I am not seeing anybody in the queue. And I assume that's likewise for WebEx hand raised, phone calls, and emails. So if there are no public comments, then the next action item would be I would move to adjourn our meeting for tonight at 9 12 p.m. So move. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Before we adjourn, I just want to say kudos to um, uh, President um, Chu, Catherine Chu. You, you you stepped up. You 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 took it in for facilitating um, the commission meeting. I appreciate you. You you came in. You came in swing. You came in. Did, you, you're doing a great job. And you know, just thank you for stepping up into that role. Um, yeah, I'm 